Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Voice of Neuro. This is World Discussion with Agent Smith. It is February the 9th, 9.52 p.m. Pacific Time, 11.52 Texas Time, which is where Agent Smith is from. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing okay. How are you? Solid. I enjoyed some rare sunshine today in Seattle. Stood out on the balcony. That's one of those things that if there's a ton of sun, you're just trying to do whatever you can to get out of the sun. But if you're, for whatever reason, in a cloudy place that rarely gets it, then the sun comes out and so do the people. <laughs> yeah, I understand it can be a bit cloudy up there. Mm-hmm. Wintertime is also less sunny and gorgeous. The summers here are pretty awesome. Winters are a little bit less impressive. It's great cozy weather, so if you want to curl up with the book and hear rain tapping against the window, that's fantastic. If you want to go out and get shit done and it's like above freezing slightly and raining, that's not the most fun. I can imagine. Yeah. Chad is asking if it snows. Yes, it does. We did get some snow. And I think I mentioned to you, Agent Smith, that I started a try-hard StarCraft practice day on Tuesdays. You did at that. And I resolved on these Tuesdays to always go for a run before I start my training and practice. And would you believe it, two of these weeks already on Tuesday, it was snowing (laughs) on my try-hard day. So it's like one of those days where normally if you had a regular training regimen, you would like, okay, well, I'll take today off. And then when the snow melts a bit, then I'll run again. So it's like, nope. So I have a snow flurry in my face to mentally prepare for the trials that come. In a way, I think it's good because it gives you a lot of confidence in yourself because it's like you get up against an opponent who's really tough, but you say to yourself, I just ran three miles through the snow and you can't stop me. (laughs) (laughs) What did you do today? Probably not that. Most uh, masters and GM StarCraft people probably roll out of bed and play or loaf about and then they play. So having a physical edge has been a pretty cool one to focus on, and that's what I do on Tuesdays. Concentrates the mind, huh? Yeah, it gets your engine going. I can definitely feel my cardiovascular system running faster, and it feels like the world moves slower compared to me once I get really charged up and engaged. I try to put myself into a physical state where I would be ready to box someone, in person so it's a really aggressive physical frame of mind and frame of body and then it ends up helping me take initiatives a lot faster within the game gotcha Mm -hmm. did you cheer for anybody for the superb owl superb owl what was that (laughs) super bowl (laughs) oh the super bowl yeah no i didn't watch it Okay. I understand Kansas City won. Yep. It was a cool game. I don't follow football at all, but that's a big event nationally and internationally, so a lot of people watch it even if they haven't been keeping tabs on football that season. Well, I can't remember the last time Kansas City was in the news, so that must have been exciting for them in particular. Yeah. I don't even know what's been going on there. The only thing I know about Kansas City is that they have a lot of fountains. 
It's supposed to be there more fountains per capita than any other major city or something like that. If you love fountains, check out Kansas City. <laughs> this advertisement has been brought to you by the city of Kansas City. <laughs> <laughs> but the big news that I passed by over these past couple weeks that people have been buzzing about some is the impeachment trials. Are those done now? Was he acquitted? Is that what happened? Yes, it was. He was acquitted. So it is done. That's pretty much all there was to it. That's uh, That was the outcome that was expected, so no great shock. Hmm. Yeah, so there's not really a lot to talk about there. People pretty much had their minds made up from the beginning and during and now after, so not a lot has really changed, I don't think. Okay. I guess, I guess you could talk about what the whole process says about... Uh, the state of American politics and division and all that jazz, but again, that's not anything anybody doesn't already know. So, I did see an amazing pie chart that showed the votes for guilty or not guilty based on the parties, and it was basically just circles of the parties. <laughs> <laughs> and it showed historically the different impeachment trials and how it is extremely rare for someone to vote outside their party line. Yeah, I could believe that. Yeah, I think Mitt Romney was the guy who was in the news this time because he's the only person who voted outside of his party. Yeah, yeah, he came out and uh, voted against him. Not that it means much. <laughs> I think it gave him some maverick cred kind of like john mccain where it didn't actually tip the scales in any capacity but it put his character in the spotlight and i would guess that he's so well off financially and stuff that he's not really pressed to be a super loyal republican and he has some kind of middle of the road policies anyway so it's not really that surprising but yeah a lot of people were hyped about it some people were saying that it was cool. Other people were saying, yeah, well, he did this bad stuff in the past, so I still don't like him. <laughs> That's politics for you. Yeah, no shock. Yeah, I don't think it'll have a lot of significance in the, for the election coming up. Mm -hmm. I know there's been a small bump in, uh, I think, support for the president, but I wouldn't expect that to last more than a month or two, so... Whatever decides the election uh, isn't going to be related to this, I don't think. Mm -hmm. So that remains to be determined. Cool. Anything else that was really big that I somehow missed living in my bubble of StarCraft memes? Did you hear about the massive plague of locusts in East Africa? No. No? No. Well, that's... Pretty much it. There's a massive plague of locusts in East Africa. That's so Zerg Starcraft. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. It's a uh, particularly a problem for East Africa since the economies over there are still pretty agricultural. So that uh, poses a significant threat to them in terms mm -hmm. of the possibility of famine and trying to deal with it. <clears throat> 
I think there was a plane in Ethiopia, passenger jet that uh, they were trying to land and they had to pull up because there were so many locusts in the air that they were blotching out the windscreen for the pilots. So wow. they had to had to pull up, and then that, I think I read that the guy actually had to lean out and clean them off midair, and then they had to come around and try it again. Hmm. It's a lot well, of that's locusts. That's overpopulation thing, because I think locusts, they have swarms that are seasonal, kind of. Yeah. After they mate and then reproduce, and they go about, and I think they die off at a pretty fast rate as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much how they work. Yeah, I didn't read what exactly was causing uh, such a particularly virulent outbreak this year, but it is definitely pretty bad. Mm -hmm. So that's something to kind of keep an eye on. You know, there's already famine conditions in Zambia, if I remember correctly, but I think that has more to do with uh, lack of rain. That's sort of mm -hmm. more to the south of East Africa. So I'm not... Not a great year for uh, agriculture in eastern and southeastern Africa, the takeaway there. So that's a thing. Do you remember the, uh, there was something else that was kind of goofy that caught my eye. Do you remember the Danish submarine guy? Yes. You do. Did you know I that he got married recently? That. No. He did which is a bit surprising considering his uh, incarceration. <laughs> you wouldn't think a guy like that could get married, but I guess that uh, gives all of us hope. For those who didn't know, what's with this submarine guy? Why is he significant? Mm. He was, um, I think he was an independently wealthy entrepreneur who bought or constructed, I don't remember exactly, his own private submarine which is what he was kind of known for in Europe, uh, specifically Denmark. And then I think a year or two ago, he went out to sea in his submarine with a journalist. And uh, then he came back alone on a raft and said that uh, the submarine had sank and that she had died. So everybody thought, oh, you know, it's an accident, how terrible, etc. And uh, then her body washed up without any arms or her head which made people a little suspicious. So the police arrested him and they looked into it and they noticed that his story kept changing. You know, uh, he said that uh, her head had been caught in a, what is it? Man cover or whatever it is. Manhole. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's what a hatch. I think that's what it is. He said that her head got caught, like uh, was slammed by a hatch or something. He just kept making shit up basically. Hmm. And uh, eventually it just, they came, it came out that he had basically murdered her uh, while they were out at sea and scuttled the submarine to try to cover it up. And before he did so, he apparently uh, decapitated her and cut off her limbs and whatnot and basically just tried to uh, sink her body using weights. You know, he took, her, he took her body, put it in a sack and tried to weigh it down so that it wouldn't wash up. But apparently that didn't work. So uh, he went to jail. <laughs> unsurprisingly. And uh, just a couple months ago, I guess it was, there was some Russian artist who uh, had been interviewing him for a project and married him. 
apparently she's something of an exile or some damn thing. She she had to leave Russia because she got in trouble with the government for something. But uh, eventually she did... I don't remember what exactly the details were of the project she was doing, but it involved interacting with them, and she's announced that they're married now. She insists that uh, she's not doing it for publicity, which, I don't know, I'm a little skeptical, frankly, considering the context, but... Uh, nominally, that was uh, in the news. Hmm. I do know of cases where a serial killer or someone who does some nasty stuff and gets a lot of press ends up having kind of a cult following of people who want to know a whole bunch about them and sometimes even develop attachments to them and stuff. I think the Charles Manson guy was kind of similar in that regard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Charles Manson, sundry, you know, different murderers. Uh, people who are just in the news sometimes attract attention from ver- from rather peculiar people. And I think one of those school shooters who didn't kill himself after the shooting and was arrested ended up getting a bunch of uh, fan mail, I guess, from fangirls. Pretty weird phenomena, but it does happen. Yep. Oh, I did want to get a maybe sobering, maybe grim perspective on the coronavirus, because that is all over the news. There's a lot of panic and stuff from a lot of people. Uh, Is it as bad as people say? What is the deal with this? Because it has impacted StarCraft. A lot of the events that are supposed to be happening really soon got rescheduled or canceled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. Uh, it's hard to say because the Chinese government isn't really being entirely forthright uh, with just how much it's spreading, where it's spreading, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a little unclear. But there's also been a lot of hysteria Uh, So I don't know that uh, the public's concerns are entirely justified. It may be that it's getting overblown due to the lack of information coming out of China. Uh, Mm -hmm. Again, it's just hard to judge. I mean, it it doesn't seem to be... uh, It is lethal, but it doesn't seem to be significantly more lethal than, say, SARS or etc. I mean, I think I read somewhere that there's already a couple thousand people who have died of flu this flu season in the United States, for example... Whereas uh, in China, it's only, I think, a couple hundred who have died thus far from coronavirus. So it doesn't seem to be necessarily all that lethal if you're, for most of the population, obviously it's uh, more of a problem for people who are older or very young or who have compromised immune systems. So uh, for those people, it's definitely a problem. Yeah, I think... A key thing there is what you're comparing it to, because the chat is saying that it's 5% lethal, maybe, ballpark, which compared to the common cold or a lot of just basic illnesses that a person could get is on the high side. But compared to SARS and stuff, as you mentioned, it may not seem like as big of a deal. Yeah, it's not my uh, field of expertise exactly, so I can't comment too much on that. Mm-hmm. I've been much, mostly just watching for the economic impact and uh, see what information comes out over time, because I don't think we're really going to know a whole lot about it until later. 
Um, mm-hmm. For example, if it spreads outside China, then we'll probably start knowing more, uh, since other countries tend to be more open and forthright with information about public health crises like this. So, I mean, that's that's a we'll see right there. But thus far, I just can't really say too much about it. I've seen a lot of uh, hysterics on Reddit. There's been some videos going around that I kind of I'm a little suspicious about their veracity, suffice to say. Some dramatic videos of nurses and doctors and things, and I kind of wonder how much of that is real. Mm-hmm. Since there's no shortage of people who have a grudge against the Chinese government, so I wouldn't put it past them to try to fake something like that. But then I can't really rule it out either. Yeah. I think it's also hard for people to understand a sort of middle of the road between we're all doomed and it's not a big deal. Because I think this falls between those two things, which is not as easy to describe. So it is a problem that is more substantial than a lot of health problems globally. And we don't quite know the extent of it, but it also doesn't seem to be wildly out of control. So it's probably not a doomsday thing, but it's also very unfortunate that so many lives have been lost. Mm-hmm. Have you looked at all into like why it's as viral as it is? Like why it's spreading as much? Well, I mean, in the case of China, it's just, uh, you know, again, not my field exactly. I'm not uh, you know, a biologist. I haven't studied um, viruses and whatnot. But I would just infer, I would assume that it has to do with the uh, population density in China. Mm-hmm. There's just so many people crammed into uh, relatively small areas. You know, uh, well, I shouldn't, regions, I should say. There's relatively small, small regions that host most of the population in China. Uh, you can look up a population density map and you can see very clearly just that the vast majority of the population is in very particular areas. You know, most of that country doesn't really have very many people in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you just look at, if you're just talking about specific geographic size, you know, the west of the country, for example, is very sparsely populated. You know, Xinjiang, Tibet, etc., Inner Mongolia, there's not a whole lot going on there. And then in contrast to the northeastern central plain region is just, you know, almost completely black. <laughs> if you look at a population density map, that, that whole area there in the northeastern is, area is almost entirely black. So it's, uh, it's not hard for something that is, uh, that is spread from person to person by air. You know, a respiratory virus. It's not very hard for it to spread pretty rapidly in uh, population centers like that. <clears throat> and then, of course, there's just modern transportation, you know, uh, trains, planes, etc. You know, the virus actually happened during um, what is, the Lunar New Year, which is the major holiday in China. So it's, uh, besides just being inherently contagious, uh, the virus also just happened to hit at a time when massive numbers of Chinese are moving around, utilizing China's mass transportation systems. Mm. So that probably exacerbated the contagion. That kind of makes me think that they... Maybe they already have things in place, but an awareness that because there's such a great number of people sharing cramped spaces and things, like how do you 
quarantine, how do you make sure things are clean? If something does break out, what is the procedure then? Because the world is becoming more interconnected than ever before, which means the scale of these kinds of problems is much greater than it has been. So we often refer to the hunter-gatherer format of society where the tribe size was somewhere between your nuclear family of maybe four people to you could be in a big tribe of 50 people. And if there was disease, then it's going to affect that many people, but it's kind of fixed. Whereas you have a billion people plus in a country. And like you said, with public transit, they take the subway. And then now you have thousands and then millions of people who are infected with something. Mm -hmm. New problems. And I think the different things that become contagious are more difficult to deal with because of how developed our immune systems are. So over the course of generations, the people who are alive now are descended from people who were more resistant to a lot of those different strains and things. Huh. So oh, the ones that we have to deal with now are basically selected by what could spread among humans. The ones that aren't effective at at least being carried by humans are going to be weeded out or forced to mess with other animals and stuff. Mm. Huh. I didn't know that. I hadn't thought of it like that, but that's an interesting point. Yeah, it was a big part of the colonization of the Western Hemisphere and also Africa and stuff because Europe had high population density and cities and things, and they had all kinds of diseases over hundreds of years. And then they bring that uh, immune system difference of high population density. A lot of people were selected out by plague and all kinds of random stuff. And even if you're in good health, sometimes you are carrying a bunch of stuff that your body knows how to shut down so it doesn't cause problems for you. But if someone has no immunity to it at all, they can get really sick and die. Yeah. So we're seeing basically a new germ meta, <laughs> a global germ meta, where you don't have that many outbreaks, but when you do have one, it's really effective because we're getting more and more of a similar immune profile. Gotcha. Interesting. Mm -hmm. If I'm wrong about all that stuff, please correct me. I'm not a doctor or a... Uh, pathologist <laughs> the pathologist the pathologist in the chat are like this guy i can't believe he's saying all this that's my best guess i'm afraid i'm in the same boat <clears throat> yeah that's uh my impression of it is that it's it's ended it's ending up more disruptive than i was expecting i thought it would mostly just impact um the tourism industry since it's going to stop people from traveling uh, as much as they would have otherwise. But I was reading today that apparently it's starting to impact manufacturing since the Chinese government has come out and uh, strongly leaned on a lot of companies manufacturing in China to try to shut down uh, in order to try to minimize the amount of people moving around and to try to inhibit the spread of the virus. And uh, apparently that's really starting to take a toll. I think uh, South Korea's Hyundai Corporation, a uh, car maker, had to shut down production in South Korea because they couldn't import the parts they needed from China. 
uh, because they'd all shut down production on account of the virus. Mm. And uh, I think I also read that smartphone production is taking a big hit because a lot of their assembly lines are uh, in southeastern China or I think also Taiwan, but I guess also in uh, the Pearl River Delta down there. So there could be a hit to the bottom lines for Apple, which I'm sure they can probably manage, <laughs> but also uh, some other manufacturers as well. So, you know, I kind of expected to just burn out eventually. You know, again, somebody more familiar with how viruses spread and uh, how long they last, etc., would know better than I would. But my impression, my assumption has been that it's eventually just going to burn out and then uh, the economy will adjust. So this will end up being a negative shock in the short run, but uh, will probably not have a long-term impact economically. That's assuming my assumption is correct that it will eventually burn out in a couple months. Uh, you know, if not, then that changes things a bit. But that is my assumption at the moment, anyway. That's basically what happened with SARS back in the day. You know, I don't know how many people remember SARS. I'm sure it's been in the news lately because coronavirus, because of the coronavirus. But there was an outbreak of a, resp a similar respiratory virus in China that the Chinese government was also not terribly forthcoming about that uh, killed another killed a number of people and really disconcerted the international community for a couple of months, I think it was, if I'm remembering correctly. So I wouldn't expect it to have a long-term impact, kind of in the same vein as SARS, but we'll see. We'll see what happens with it. What's the name of that? There's a board game <clears throat> that you can play that has a bunch of different diseases that break out that affect different regions of continents and the strategy is that you're supposed to eliminate them as best you can and control outbreaks and things like that. Greenland survives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure about the board game, but I've heard of Play Gink before. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to have been... Uh, people in China have apparently been downloading it since the virus started spreading, there's been a huge uptick in uh, buyers in China of Plague Inc. So apparently people have taken an interest over there. A pandemic, that's what it's called. Thank you. Yeah, I don't have a lot of uh, big ticket news items to talk about. It's mostly just a little bit here and there. Cool. What's been going on? Oh, did you hear the news about Russia? No. Let me see if I can find my notes on it. <clears throat> it's basically Vladimir Putin kind of trying to reorganize his government to uh, prepare for his nominal retirement. It's not entirely clear just how much he's going to really retire, but it does seem like he's uh, paving the way for eventual succession. He's kind of an older guy, so it makes sense. Uh, it's also happening, what, I think a couple years before the next election. What is it? I think it's four years uh, for the Ru pres Russian president. Every four years they have an election. So uh, obviously he's just gotten his second term started. So it's looking like uh, he's preparing for the end. I think he just started his second term, didn't he? I want to say that's the case. So he's got a couple a couple more years before the next election, but uh, it looks like he's moving early to try to prepare for it. 
Technically, mm. there's a two-term limit, but you know it's Russia, so who cares? He'll he's he's already kind of skirted that once when he uh, became prime minister, and uh, Dmitry Medvedev Medvedev became president for what was it? I think one term Medved, Medvedev was in, and then Putin came back. So even though he was not president, he was still the power behind the scenes. So obviously Putin can kind of still manage things, even if he doesn't hold the actual office of the presidency. Hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I think uh, it was pretty surprising, though. There was some pretty significant changes that happened. Uh, the entire government resigned. Uh, the prime minister, the cabinet, etc. The new prime minister is apparently a guy named Mikhail Mishustin. My pronunciation, my pronunciation of Russia is obviously not up to par. Uh, apparently, this uh, Machustin guy is uh, known for overhauling the tax system. So it wasn't really clear to me what the significance of that was. I think I read somewhere that uh, it might indicate that they were going to try to focus on fighting corruption, since tax evasion is a big deal. Uh, but you know, that's speculation. You know, who knows? Uh, there was also a new constitution that is uh, set to be proposed. Parliament will have more power, and uh, the prime minister will be appointed. Uh, and there's also going to be a new cabinet. You know, no shock. Mm. Uh, the parliament will. Oh, sorry. The parliament will approve the prime minister and will approve the cabinet, which is not something they do now. Right now, that's pretty much at the discretion of the president. <clears throat> so the parliament will be relatively more powerful, and then the state council will be, could be made a formal part of the government. The state council is basically just a council of all the different governors in Russia, the governors of all the different oblasts and uh, autonomous okrugs and all that jazz. So that's an informal institution that uh, kind of meets together so that uh, the different governors can coordinate and so that the president, whom I think, uh, well, I think the, whoever heads the, the guy that heads the state council, I think he's appointed. That's an appointed position. So Vladimir Putin, uh, is basically angling to try to make that a formal part of government, and then maybe he's going to try to put himself as the head of that going forward. That's the theory, anyway, if it's actually true. But uh, that that could be something that happens in the new constitution. And then there was also uh, a new rule that barred people with foreign barred people with foreign citizen citizenship and foreign residency uh, from holding the presidency. So. That's, uh, I'm not entirely sure what that was about, but that could just be trying to prevent uh, color revolutions or a hedge against color revolutions since uh, some of the people that came to power after color revolutions in places like Ukraine, Georgia, etc. Uh, often had dual citizenship status. So long story short, Putin is preparing for succession and he could, he'll probably stay on until 2024. But uh, he may not stay on specifically as president afterwards. He'll probably have some other institutionalized role. You know, again, state council is the leading theory right now. He'll head the state council, and that'll be uh, officially a part of the government in some capacity. It's not really clear yet what they have in mind for it, but uh, that could be like an elder statesman type function for him within the government going forward after 2024. So the significance of that beyond just paving the way for succession is uh, there could be elevated political competition in Russia for the next few years. You know, it hasn't been a whole lot of real political competition because obviously the United Russia Party 
and uh, I think the Just Russia Party, which is basically a front party for United Russia, those have pretty much been in the driver's seat politically. But going forward, uh, a lot of the governors uh, in Russia could start really competing with each other to try to get the nod from Putin to be the next president. Um, it's not, I don't know necessarily that it, the next president will be a, a former governor or a current governor, but uh, there's been a lot of movement there over the past couple of years in terms of uh, the Russian government kind of grooming the next generation of leaders by giving them governorships. So it seems like uh, there's a better than even chance a governor will end up with the presidency. Uh, again, it's unclear just how much power they'll actually have because Putin will still be on and he'll still be involved politically, but uh, the extent isn't clear. There was an ECFR podcast I was listening to that was talking about this, and uh, some of the speakers were of the mind that Putin is kind of bored with the day-to-day mundane bullshit of running a government and that he wants to stay on in so much as uh, in the capacity of being able to continue to steer overall policy, but that the details, uh, the mundane stuff will fall to some successor candidate uh, who currently is undetermined. But that's that's kind of the news there. The Russian government is uh, prepping for succession at it could be a problem if uh, political competition gets out of control, but I think Russia's political system can probably handle it. So the open question right now is what kind of role Putin looks to create for himself uh, for after he steps down from the presidency and uh, who exactly in Russia's, among Russia's political elites benefits from that and who steps into uh, the power vacuum in so much as there will be a power vacuum. So he wants less stuff that he has to do he still wants to have a lot of say in what's going on yeah seems like that's not uncommon in authoritarian political systems for powerful figures who retire to still have a lot of influence uh you know if you've got you know if your patronage network that you leaned on to maintain your power uh, is entirely dependent on you coordinating between everybody in it then you can step down from power and still kind of order everybody around you know you can still have a lot of influence that happened in that happens in china a lot uh you know back in the 80s 90s uh, a lot of retired quote unquote political leaders were still actually uh the main leaders of the communist party of china uh, they weren't governing in a any in any kind of official capacity but their political networks, patronage networks, were all still so so strong and so centered on them as individuals that they were still able to uh, indirectly influence, if not direct, uh, government policy just using their influence over their networks. Hmm. That doesn't really happen so much now since Xi Jinping came to power because he's actually been cracking down on those kinds of networks so that he can build his own and become the new dominant uh, political leader to have his political faction and network become the new dominant network. He's been targeting political rivals. So that's not, that hasn't happened as much now, uh, but it was. And that just sort of illustrates what's probably happening in Russia right now. They're probably just trying to set up new, a new institutional framework by which Russia's main political patronage network, that being the one led by Putin, can continue to function uh, without Putin in the official capacity uh, of Russia's president without him holding that office. So a whole lot of movement that's basically just meant to preserve the status quo, more or less. But 
there in you know in so much as Putin does step back from the presidency eventually you know when that happens there is potential room for change you know whoever steps into that role as president they'll have some discretionary power not as much as Putin has now as president but there'll be some scope for policy change and so that's sort of where people are looking you know in so much as this open space for that uh, there could be substantive political reform in Russia for the first time in a long time. But that depends entirely on how much discretionary power Putin's successor is given uh, within his uh, political network, and it's not really clear yet just how much he's going to give on that count. So this is basically a long-winded way of saying things are changing in Russia. Mm. Something well, to watch. He was, he was president and then prime minister and then president again. Is that the thing? Yeah, he was president for two terms, and there's a two-term limit, technically. So he did not run again for a third term, uh, step, became prime minister. Uh, the United Russia Party facilitated that. You know, they, they weren't going to not do it. And uh, Dmitry Medvedev uh, became the new president for one term, for four years. I think it was one term, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, but Medvedev is within Putin's network. He's one of his top guys, so to speak. So it wasn't really the case that Medvedev was in charge and Putin was in some kind of subsidiary role. It's uh, presumed on the part of analysts that Putin was still on the driver's seat and was just letting Medvedev keep the seat warm for him until he could run again uh, after that one term. You know, it's a two-term limit. Uh, but it's only the limit is just two consecutive terms. So so long as it's split up. Uh, by one term, he could come back and run again for two terms, which is which it seems is what he's doing. Is that the same in the U.S.? Technically, yes, I think so. Okay. So, for an example, George W. Bush could run this election if he wanted to. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Somebody more versed in that constitutional amendment would be able to tell you with more confidence than I could, but I think that's how it works. <clears throat> so something to watch, an unfolding story that's going to be playing out over the next couple of years. I wouldn't expect too much dramatic change in Russia's government policies, but uh, there could be minor changes here and there that could be significant in the long run, depending on how they play out. Cool. I did see in the chat they were curious about the U.S. election for president and Brexit, which are both very broad, but I think everyone needs their regular Agent Smith Brexit thing. Has anything happened? Yes. It happened. <laughs> it happened? What happened? Brexit. They left the European Union. What? It's over? Then what are we going to talk about? Oh, it's definitely not over, not by a long shot, but they have officially no. left the European Union. So that particular phase of the process is now over. Mm -hmm. Now that they've left the European Union, now they have to negotiate a free trade agreement with the European Union that finalizes the degree of economic integration that they want to maintain. And that's mm -hmm. going to be a whole other set of negotiations that's going to play out over the course of the next year or so. So Brexit happened, but it's not over. There's plenty more to come. 
and it's probably going to be just as contentious as all the stuff that's already happened. Okay, good. So we can still keep talking about Brexit for the indefinite future. Got yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we can definitely do that. Well, did we talk about uh, the results of Britain's last election? I don't quite remember if we did or not. Yes, Boris Johnson won. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And he was one of the main guys pushing in favor of Brexit, right? Yes, he's the big Brexit dude. And he won pretty big in the election, so he's very much in the driver's seat. He's going to have his choice of uh, what direction he wants to take policy-wise for Britain for the foreseeable future. So that's going to lead to some probably pretty dramatic changes. Um, not really clear entirely what he is going to do as of yet, uh, but he has the power to do quite a bit. And, you know, it's kind of the way the UK's political system is structured. You know, if you can get a majority in Parliament, then you have a lot of leeway. Uh, definitely doesn't work like that in the US. You know, here in the US, there's a lot more checks and balances that make it difficult to legislate. So major swings in policy making are a little more difficult. But uh, over in the UK, it's a little easier, and Johnson is going to be the beneficiary of that for sure. Well, I did have some specific policies that he was uh, that have been discussed uh, that he could implement. So I wanted to just kind of briefly review some of them. I don't entirely remember all of this because these notes are a little old. So let me take a look here. <clears throat> Oh, yeah. So a lot of this has to do with how he's going to maintain his base. Obviously, Johnson got a lot of support because he was more for Brexit than anybody else. And the Tories very much ran as the Brexit party. They're going to try to maximize the degree of uh, discretionary policymaking. How do I put this? They want to maximize the UK's ability to uh, be a sovereign nation, to set its own policies independent of the European Union. So that's very much their gist, and uh, that's kind of what he won on. But a lot of the people who really want that are people in these areas that have suffered from deindustrialization, you know, former manufacturing workers, former miners, etc. A lot of economically depressed regions in the UK are filled with people who really believe in Brexit and want to give Johnson a chance to do something for them. But it's not really clear exactly... Uh, what Johnson can actually do to restore economic prosperity to a lot of these areas, because uh, they don't really have a lot of economic advantages that make them competitive uh, in any specific industry uh, in a way that would allow the government to specifically kind of focus on those industries. So that makes it difficult for Johnson politically, because uh, he's been given a mandate by people who want him uh, to improve their economic circumstances, but their economic cir circumstances are such that it's very difficult for the government to do anything that could substantially improve their lot. So kind of an open question then is just what the British government is going to do, what specifically the Johnson administration is going to do to try to appease these people, given that it has a limited set of policy tools that can actually address the problem that they want them to address. <clears throat> so some early answers here. Uh, the government says that it's going to change how uh, benefit, oh, how public investments, how the benefit of public investments is calculated. Uh, so you know, over in the UK, they have uh, it's a little easier in the UK than in the US to for the government to spend on uh, social spending or uh, public investments, uh, such as they are, quote unquote, you know, basically to uh, do industrial policy of one kind or another. 
uh, in so much as that's allowed within the WTO and whatnot. And when they do that, they generally try to calculate what the benefit of a given proposed public investment is. And right now, the criticism is that the current system that they have for calculating benefit is biased uh, towards projects that are that happen in regions that are already wealthy. You know, London being the principal example. Obviously, London is economically dynamic, very prosperous. They're doing very well, so uh, they don't really need a lot of public investment per se, uh, relative to some of the other regions of the UK that have been struggling more. <clears throat> So one of the things the current system does is that it only looks at returns on investment over uh, 25 years. Uh, that is to say, 25 years into the future. But it doesn't really go beyond that. So that kind of biases uh, results towards uh, short-term gain, relatively speaking. So the Johnson administration wants the system to facilitate more projects in the Midlands, poorer regions, etc. Uh, in order to try to goose the economic development and economic growth there. So that's one way that the Johnson administration could try uh, to try to boost the economies in depressed areas. Uh, they could try to rejig how public investments happen to try to divert more, relatively more funding uh, into those regions. Let's see, they're also looking at gathering data, uh, improving the way they gather data so that they can have more information on regional differences. Right now there's a a lack of data on regional differences, that is to say, economic differences uh, in the UK, and that makes it a little difficult to really try to formulate policy that specifically targets uh, specific regions. <clears throat> and one of the things they want to look at is uh, differences in regional inflation uh, or capital investment and also trade between regions. So all of that could paint a better uh, picture, a stronger picture of just what's happening economically within the UK such that it would be easier to try to design public policy uh, to benefit those regions. Uh, let's see, formal objectives and structures within Her Majesty's Treasury could also be changed. Um, that's kind of a wonky thing. Uh, they didn't really specify what exactly they mean, uh, but I suspect what they're going to try to do is to try to uh, do little things within uh, the Treasury Department. Um, I'm calling it the Treasury Department, that's what we call it here in the U.S., but uh, they're going to try to rejig how the institution as a whole is designed in a way that could open up more money for public investment. Now, that's very ambiguous, but the announcement itself was ambiguous, so uh, it's not really clear what exactly they plan on doing, but that's something to watch. I don't. That may just be an announcement for, annou for the sake of having an announcement. Uh, they may not know themselves exactly what they want to do, uh, but we'll see. It'll probably be just minor little things here and there that they try to blow into a major achievement. That's not unusual in politics. So let's see. Talk. Oh, this was fun. So they were talking about relocating the House of Lords to, uh, to the Midlands. That's the region in the center of the UK. Uh, for example, maybe Birmingham. So that's... Probably not going to really solve anything, but it could be a low-key way to just try to generate economic growth uh, in so much as there's going... If you did do that, there would be more government activity uh, over in, you know, Birmingham or wherever they relocated them. So that could gener that would generate new economic growth in the region. I don't think it would really be game-breaking, uh, and it would certainly make government a, a bit less efficient, but technically that is, you know, a thing you could do. You kind of see similar logic in, uh, with Indonesia relocating their capital. You know, Indonesia, we talked about that a while back. 
Indonesia is uh, relocating their capital to an to a region in Indonesia that is not very economically developed. And part of the logic is that by relocating the capital, uh, there will be a bunch of government activity, you know, offices, departments, government workers, etc., that will be there who will obviously need uh, goods and services in order to in order to uh, sustain themselves, you know, food, uh, housing, etc. So all of, providing all of that will generate a lot of new economic activity in that region. So I think the logic is similar here. Isn't that the case with Brasilia, Brazil? Yeah, yeah, same idea. Because yeah, that's pretty far inland, which is, from an economic standpoint, not where most of the economy is going to be centered, but it does kind of set the nation's capital somewhere that is centrally located, which is supposed to help the region. So they're doing it to help the region rather than because the region is the best region. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much the gist of it. It was, uh, you know, one part economic development, you know, one part, <laughs> you know, showmanship, I guess, you know, because you want to try to, uh, you know, the interior of the country was undeveloped, but they it also kind of symbolized the frontier. So I think that was also part of the logic as well. But yeah, for the most part, they wanted to develop the interior of Brazil because at that time it was still fairly unsettled. You know, it took Brazil a long time to settle its interior. It's only, and it's still a process that's actually happening even now. Uh, that coastal region was hard to get through, and infrastructure has always been pretty poor. So there wasn't a lot of penetration into the interior until Brazil's later history. You know, maybe the past hundred plus years or so. So yeah, those are some reforms the uh, Johnson administration is looking at, and all of them are basically just geared towards uh, trying to help out the Midlands, you know, trying to help out those uh, that sort of rust belt, as we call it in the United States. Mm -hmm. Whether or not it actually works, I don't know. I don't think any one of these uh, policies, or even all of them together, are really going to significantly reverse uh, economic decline in that region. It's... Um, just, you know, it'll help, but it's not going to substantively, I don't think any of that can really become the new economic driver, which is what the region really needs. But fortunately for people who love hearing about Brexit, it seems like this talk is not going away for the foreseeable future. Well, I actually have more than that. That's, um, that's the early... These are some early examples of what the Johnson administration wants to do to try to help out the Midlands region, but also to preserve uh, the support of its political base. Oh, that was the intro. That was, that was the Brexit. intro, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, that's, um, you know, the Tories are not really Britain's Labour Party. They're not the Workers' Party, but they've kind of become the Workers' Party, kind of in the same way that the Republican Party under Trump has increasingly become the party of workers. Uh so it's kind of an odd relationship, you know, this sort of weird alliance between uh, traditionally pro-business uh, conservatives and uh, conservative workers. And it's not really clear how that's going to be maintained. You know, what I've listed just now is some of the ways that the government might try to maintain it, but I don't know if that's going to really substantively be enough. Mm. So that's just the point I was making there. Um, Getting back more specifically to Brexit, 
let me try to find the notes for that because that's more recent. Um, what's what's happening now is uh, the U- the UK needs to negotiate a free trade deal with the European Union. You know, like I mentioned before, so the negotiations on that are sort of in their very early stages. So there's not a whole lot of developments going on there. Uh, the only thing that's been announced thus far is that the Johnson administration wants a Canada-style free trade deal in which there is no tariffs and no quotas on goods shipped between the two countries. So that's the ideal. But the Johnson administration also says that they don't want to have any regulatory alignment. They don't want British regulations uh, to be fixed uh, by the European Union. They want the right and ability to set them however they want. So that's the UK's opening position uh, in the free trade negotiations. The European Union, for its part, says that it also wants uh, a free trade deal that involves uh, no tariffs and no quotas but it says that there needs to be regulatory alignment as well. So that's going to create some, that, that's the obvious opening point of contention between them that has to be uh, negotiated away. So that's at least the starting point. Um, I don't know if either side really wants to hew closely to these opening positions. I kind of suspect that they're uh, overselling their respective positions, uh, just being overly dramatic just so that they can negotiate down from that to the deal they actually want. Uh, I kind of think that both, I get the impression that both the EU and the UK um, want that Canada-style free trade deal. That's pretty much, uh, I think that's more or less consensus, even if they're not really willing to admit it at this point. But uh, it remains to be seen whether or not that's the case. I, that's speculation on my part, basically. Oh, here we go. <clears throat> so some of the uh, individual sectors here that are relevant, just to kind of break it down, agriculture, manufacturing, services. So these are sort of the main, these are the principal sectors that you can break an economy down into. Um, I suspect that manufacturing is kind of the crux of it because the manufacturing sector employs a lot of the people in that sort of depressed Midlands region that we were talking about in the UK. So I suspect the UK government pretty strongly wants to maintain economic integration uh, for that specific sector. So for that, if only for that reason, and the the EU will want that too, because that's obviously an important part of their economy. So I suspect that's going to form the basis for a future agreement. There probably will at least be uh, a free trade deal that encompasses that particular sector. Uh, The open question, though, is more agriculture and uh, services. You know, for something like agriculture, I don't think it's a huge priority because it's not a major employer anywhere, but it's always sensitive politically uh, because they, that's, well, two reasons. One, uh, those people tend to have disproportionate voting power just because of the way electoral systems are designed. Uh, But also it's strategically sensitive because uh, your food supply can always be cut off by a hostile foreign power. So there's generally a desire to be at least somewhat self-sufficient in food production. Europe in particular makes a point of doing that, uh, being self-sufficient in terms of uh, a lot of agricultural produce through its common agricultural policy, which is sort of the big ticket uh, spending item in the EU's budget. I I think that's still the one policy that they spend most of the EU's budget on, just trying to maintain agricultural subsidies within the EU. But I also don't think that there's a big constituency that's just really itching for a formal break with uh, Britain's agricultural sector. I don't think anybody in the 
in the European Union agricultural sector really wants to just block out British imports uh, or imports of British agricultural goods. I think the only major interest group is going to be the Dutch because they export a lot of their agricultural produce produce to the UK. So given the lack of interest on the part of the broader EU and the very specific interest on the part of the Dutch of maintaining access to the UK's market, I think that could also be a consensus item for the EU and the UK because uh, the UK obviously also wants to maintain access to the European market for its agricultural goods. So that may be something that also uh, is not very contentious. So the big open question then is the services sector. And obviously that's a, a particular interest for the UK because it has a massive financial industry. Uh, its financial firms are some of the biggest in the world and uh, the financial industry is a major driver of employment and economic growth uh, in the United Kingdom, especially for London. So that being the case, there's an incentive for the United Kingdom to try to negotiate a free trade deal that includes and encompasses services. And uh, it's not really clear whether or not the European Union is going to be game for that. Now, that's not necessarily a deal breaker uh, because the financial sector in the UK will probably be fine no matter what happens. Uh, even if they lose access, well, they won't lose access completely to the European market because, you know, a lot of that happens digitally. It's kind of hard to stop people investing their money overseas if they want to. They'll generally find a way to get their money out if they want to. That's, uh, you saw that back in the 1970s with the euro dollar collapsing the Bretton Woods Agreement. You know, that whole series of uh, events kind of illustrates the fluidity in the of financial markets and the difficulty of regulating them. So the European Union probably could not stop people from using uh, Britain's financial sector, but they could definitely make it harder. And I'm sure the financial sector in the UK would prefer not to. But if it were made harder, they would probably just push the UK government to negotiate deals with other countries that kind of made up for it. I think I was reading, um, I was reading at least the abstract for a, a paper that was released by whatever the UK's equivalent of the Chamber of Commerce is. I don't know what they call it exactly, but uh, it was a report that was written by uh, some researchers who were hired by the financial industry in the UK to try to look at what possible deals the UK government could sign that would bolster. Uh, the financial sector in the UK. And they had lots of proposals. So there's definitely things that uh, will happen after Brexit is, you know, finished and done that will benefit the financial sector, regardless of how much access they retain to the European market. So they're going to be fine. And uh, given the fact that they're relatively flexible like that, and given the fact that, you know, catering Brexit to the financial sector is not going to be a vote winner in the UK, again, uh, the big question for the UK's government is maintaining the support of that Rust Belt region and a lot of the uh, blue-collar workers there. So trying to design a deal around the financial sector is not going to serve that purpose. That's not going to be popular. So for those reasons, I think uh, the, the British government will try, uh, at least to some degree, to incorporate services into the free trade deal, but I don't think they'll be willing to give up too much to get it. I think they'll be just as comfor comfortable just trying to expand uh, access to the rest of the world for their financial sector. There's also a question of digital trade, um, you know, how uh, things like games and uh, digital commerce, e-commerce, whatever you want to call that. But I suspect that both the British government and the European Union would be willing to settle that in some kind of side deal. 
Uh, they might include it in the free trade agreement, but if they don't, they could pretty easily just negotiate something on the side, kind of like what the EU has done with the U.S. and with other countries. So that probably won't be a deal breaker either. <clears throat> yeah, the services sector is the better part of the British economy. Just generally speaking, that's the largest sector by far. But uh, it's also very difficult to incorporate that into a free trade deal. Uh, because the services sector is so amorphous and encompasses so many different industries, it's kind of hard to design it into a free trade agreement. It hasn't really been done very much. Uh, the Canada style, well, not even that, The specifically the Canada-EU free trade agreement that was signed did not encompass services. Uh, it was almost exclusively agricultural and manufacturing goods. So there hasn't been much uh, traction even you know, with a country like Canada that the EU probably could, probably has as good a deal as it's going to get uh, in terms of free trade. You know, that Canada deal really represents that. Whether or not, uh, so that kind of makes me suspect that services probably will not be uh, in a, the eventual EU-UK free trade deal. But I think there will be a, some tension there. In so much as there's tension in the free trade agreement negotiations, it's going to be around the services sector. That's, uh, that's my suspicion anyway, in the early going. So let's see, that's, uh, that's kind of a quick and dirty review of where we are with the EU-UK trade negotiations. Uh, in terms of overall, in terms of predictions, uh, I think the UK has a stronger negotiating position now with Johnson than it had under Theresa May. I think that much is clear. Um, but I don't know if it's really going to matter because overall the European Union uh, has more leverage just by dint of being uh, a huge market. So I think overall they have more leverage there. Uh, but of course Johnson has more credibility when he threatens that he'll he's willing to walk away. He's already said that he'd be willing to accept a, an Australia-style deal, which is basically the same as no deal. Uh, you know, Australia has relatively minimal economic agreements with the European Union. <clears throat> so that's a credible threat on the part of the Johnson administration, since there's a lot of people who are very much for a hard Brexit within the Tories, among the Tories. But I don't think that's really what he has in mind, because that would be pretty disruptive, especially to a lot of the people uh, that he's trying to build his policy around. Again, the uh, Rust Belt type blue collar workers in the Midlands. Let's see, agriculture, fisheries is a big thing, but that's, I think that'll get worked out. That's not too big a deal. Politically speaking, it's a little hairy because obviously uh, British fishermen want to maximize their gain, right? They want to exclude European fishers, fishermen uh, from having access to British waters. But then the downside is that if they do that, then the European Union is going to block them from exporting fish to Europe. And most of Britain's uh, fishing exports go to uh well, I shouldn't say that. Most of their exports go to uh, the European Union, but not only that, most of what they catch actually gets exported to the European Union, gets sent to the, ex the European Union. So that means that there's going to be some tension in the early going, but probably they'll have some deal where there's actually still mutual access uh, to fishing waters. That could change. That's subject to political turbulence, but uh, I suspect in the long run that'll be the equilibrium. Well, they do have an island which has water all around it, so I could see how exporting fish would be a, <laughs> yeah. a thing they would do most of the time. 
Yeah, pretty important for them. Let's see. So we already talked about services, manufacturing, etc. So to kind of bring it full circle then, um, if London is bluffing when they say that they don't want any regulatory alignment, then uh, services and finance will be a principal point of contention, but otherwise there's probably going to be consensus on a deal, and we'll probably have one pretty comfortably within the margin, uh, the negotiating deadline. I think they have roughly a year to negotiate something, so I suspect they'll probably have something ready well before the deadline in that case. Uh, there is an interesting question, though. Uh, if services is not part of the free trade agreement they negotiate, then there's this question of how far the European Union goes to try to incentivize financial firms in London to relocate into Europe. So they could maybe get a chunk of the British financial sector trying to, by creating uh, policies that incentivize relocation like that, which would be pretty attractive you know, for the European Union because that could generate... That could be a long-term investment that results in a fair amount of uh, economic growth, you know, lots of new jobs, etc. But that would also be something that they could use as a uh, threat in the negotiation itself. They could start doing things, signaling basically that they're going to implement policies like that uh, as a way to kind of scare the British into giving more concessions. So that could be something that pops up during the negoti negotiating process itself uh, as a scare tactic, but not necessarily the one that they would actually commit to in the long run. So if London is not bluffing, um, that's going to be a problem because then that kind of brings us back to the Irish border issue. Uh, if there is regulatory alignment, then you have an open border between Northern Ireland and Ireland and no problem. But if there is no regulatory alignment, then that suggests that there's going to be border checks. And that kind of brings us back to the whole Irish border issue that was such a sticking point for the uh, initial Brexit negotiations. So well, that's not, it's not really clear how that's going to get worked out. <clears throat> and the whole reason regulatory alignment is a problem is, uh, well, for one, you know, obviously the superficial reason is that different health standards, safety standards, etc. So, you know, you want your goods to be safe that uh, get sold in your markets. So it may be that the UK tries to relax its uh, standards to a degree that is not comfortable uh, for European consumers and policymakers. So in that case, you would want the border checks and whatnot to just try to make sure that nothing dangerous is getting imported. <clears throat> but more specifically, there's the problem of uh, the UK importing things from other countries and then exporting them onto the European Union. So if you do have a no tariffs, no quotas policy, uh, but no regulatory alignment, there is that possibility where goods... Uh, being imported into the UK could then be exported on uh, to Europe where they would not otherwise be able to get imported. So it's not really clear how that square gets circled. And that's something that's probably going to be a sticking point going forward, regardless of whether or not London is bluffing. Hmm. So we'll see. Right. It's also just from the outsider's perspective, interesting to see how it's going to play out because the whole Brexit campaign had a bunch of promises and ideas that got a lot of people excited. I mean, half the people voted in favor of it, roughly. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people were looking forward to this. The question is, is it going to deliver what people thought it was? Well, you know, again, that's, what the, that's why the Johnson administration is trying to divert more funding, development funding, public investment money, etc., into that region. 
that's uh, specifically what he's trying to do there. It's mm -hmm. still not really clear to me, you know, like you infer, just how Brexit is really going to benefit uh, deindustrialized regions of the UK. Um, if you deregulate the economy and make labor cheaper, then that could goose manufacturing. But uh, it's a tough sell. Yeah, I mean, it's it, even if you do that, then uh, labor is still going to be relatively expensive. Uh, the EU very specifically does not want uh, to have to compete with uh, British manufactured goods that are competitive just because labor is cheaper. So I suspect that if it came to that, then the European Union would probably shut off its market specifically to prevent uh, British exports from entering its market and competing with uh, indigenous producers. So that means that if they did that, if they tried to attract new manufacturing by lowering the cost of labor and deregulating, they're going to have to export to other parts of the world. But I'm not really sure who would really want that. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's lots of places that have cheap manufactured goods coming in from China, and they don't really like it very much. You know, that's kind of a political bone of contention in many countries. So uh, having the UK kind of join, jump in, I don't know that they would have any better luck. But we'll see. I mean, maybe they'll think of something. <clears throat> My suspicion is that uh, Brexit from the start has been, on the part of at least the hard Brexit faction and the Tories, has been about deregulation. I kind of think that's what they had in mind from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So I, I suspect that's what they'll try to do. But again, it's kind of a gamble. You know, it's relative. Britain is a relatively expensive country to manufacture in. So, and the kinds of manufacturing jobs you would get as a low-wage manufacturing center may not be the kinds of jobs people really want. You know, they may not be the ones they have in mind. There's already low-wage jobs in Britain now, and generally they're filled by uh, immigrants who come in from places like Poland or Ukraine, etc. So if uh, you're having to import immigrants to work those jobs now, then having more of them isn't necessarily going to uh, increase jobs for native British people. That might just mean more immigration. And having more control over immigration is part of what uh, Brexit was supposed to be about. And that was a big part of uh, a lot of, that was a big reason why a lot of people voted for Brexit. You know, they wanted to reduce immigration, not increase it. So it's just not really so, clear to me how that pans out in the long run. So they don't want the low-paying jobs, but they don't want immigrants either, and they've been doing most of the low-paying jobs, so it means they have to do the low-paying jobs? Yeah, which is why I'm a little skeptical that that's really going to work out the way they want it to. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, uh, I think there's kind of... There's sort of two factions that are sort of invisible within the hard Brexit faction. So you can kind of break it in two. On one side are sort of the uh, Rees-Mogg types. You know, Rees-Mogg is one of the prominent politicians in London uh, who's been very much for a hard Brexit. So these are sort of the more the old-school conservative Tories who want to deregulate the economy, who want you know, to make it easier to hire and fire workers, etc. You know, they want to make the, con the economy more competitive. But... Uh, I don't, they don't really have much in common with the uh, blue-collar workers who represent the other faction. You know, these are the people who want Britain to reduce immigration, but also want to restore manufacturing and revitalize the uh, deindustrialized regions. And their visions of how to accomplish that are kind of in conflict with each other. 
you know, I think there's an expectation amongst the blue-collar workers that if they can just uh, deregulate the economy a bit, then manufacturing the manufacturing sector will return to form, and there will be a lot more good blue-collar jobs available. But I think for the resmog types, their thinking is not that they're going to restore a lot of good manufacturing jobs. They just want to improve, increase the number of manufacturing jobs in general. Um, the quality of the jobs being a little suspect. So it's not really clear if uh, which it's not really clear to me which of these factions is going to kind of get its way, and I don't know that how realistic either of them really are. So if there is going to be in the future tension uh, within the Tories due to a lack of uh, development, due to a lack of recovery that they were promising, I think it's that specific fault line that's going to be generating the tension. But again, that all kind of remains to be seen. Jobs, jobs, jobs. Give us more jobs. Those people, they're taking our jobs. Let's have them back. Oh, wait, we don't like those jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's also um, another kind of parallel story that's happening that's separate but related is the UK uh, negotiating with the United States. Uh, that is to say, negotiating a free trade deal with the United States. Both uh, the Johnson administration and the Trump administration have said that they want to sign a deal, but it's not really clear how that's when that negotiation is going to start, what it's going to look like, etc. So that's uh, that's also another open question mark going forward that could influence uh, the negotiation of the EU-UK trade deal. <clears throat> you know, I suspect that uh, that's going to have tie into regulatory alignment uh, again. Because I think the United States is going to want uh, one particular set of uh, regulations, you know, etc. And the European Union is going to want something very different. And if they do end up uh, conflicting with each other, that could put the UK in a difficult position where it's having to choose between one or the other. It would certainly complicate the negotiations. So that's something else to look forward to. And uh, that could also tie into another story, which is the United States, well, the Trump administration, uh, could be set to start putting pressure on the European Union in terms of uh, a new trade deal. Now, the Trump administration has said that it wants to uh, change trade relations with Europe and wants to revise them in a new deal. And it started, you know, incrementally, it's been putting more pressure on Europe. So you could end up with a kind of three-way competition between the European Union, the UK, and the United States to uh, renegotiate the entire transatlantic trade relationship. And that could have significant repercussions in the, for the future, depending on how that pans out. But all of that, again, is very early days, and we really don't know much about you know, what direction they're going to take. Trump, the Trump administration may not even pursue it seriously. Uh, since it's an election year, they may prefer to go for a softball agreement that looks like it changes things, but actually doesn't. That's been uh, the principal type of trade agreement they've been signing over the couple of years, basically showpiece agreements. Uh, so that wouldn't really affect things in the long run, in which case uh, the UK-EU negotiations would probably not really be affected. But with the Trump administration, who knows? You know, Maybe they go full court press and really pressure uh, the Europeans strongly, in which case... Uh, those negotiations would be very difficult, but more to the point, the UK-EU negotiations would probably also uh, be significantly affected. 
in so much as the United States and the UK perhaps tried to create a kind of common front uh, to negotiate with them. So all of that is so things to watch, basically. Yeah, it's a time of pretty great change, at least in that area and domain. Very much so. Just not really clear what the change is yet. <laughs> That's the problem. That's why it's so difficult to forecast. It's uh, all uncharted territory, so nobody really knows what uh, what direction things are going to take or where we're going to be a year from now or five years from now or ten years from now. So all that uncertainty creates a lot of uh, anxiety, for one, but it also creates a lot of problems for people trying to do any kind of substantive analytical forecasting. So who knows? Well, there's your early February Brexit update. The TLDR, if you didn't hear all that, is basically that Brexit is done, and it actually is just beginning to unfold. <laughs> so we have no idea what's going to happen. Promises have been made. Goals have been set, but the pieces are still just beginning to move. Yeah, yeah kind of just getting started. In a sense, this is, I guess you could call this phase two of Brexit. That's just getting mm. started. So we'll, we'll see what substantive changes are made there. Uh, let's see, have you been following Syria at all? No, what's happening there? Mm. So what's been going on there for the past couple of months is that the Syrian government has been pushing into Idlib province, which is the province where... Turkish-backed rebels have been uh, dominant for the past five, ten years. The conflict's been dragging out for a while now, but pretty much from the start, Idlib province has been the uh, beating heart of the Syrian re rebellion, at least for rebels. Mm -hmm. So that being the case, uh, it's kind of significant that the Syrian government is making gains there. It's kind of been in the cards for a while. The rebels have pretty clearly been losing the war. Uh, but for the government to push into Idlib province is pretty significant. So that's been a that's been a pretty big change. It's also significant in so much as it shows that uh, the Turkish government is not that invested in preserving its influence in Idlib province. Uh, you know, there have been several times over the past couple years when uh, ceasefire agreements have been violated by the Syrian government, and when the Syrian government has moved into territory in Idlib province. Uh, to try to push rebels out, generally successfully. And the Turkish government's response was generally pretty weak. They haven't really done that much. Uh, the strongest they've done, the strongest move they've made uh, over the past year was to try to put, well, was to successfully put Turkish observers, uh, these are Turkish troops who are sent as observers into Idlib province uh, on the border between rebel-held territory and government-held territory. And their job is to basically act as a tripwire to try to deter the Syrian government from violating the ceasefire and taking more territory. And the Syrian government responded to that by violating the ceasefire and just going around the observers. So hmm. not a very successful deterrent, uh, it seems. And the result has been successive losses of territory by the rebels, uh, incrementally so, you know, not big chunks of territory being taken, but 
they have incrementally been losing territory in Idlib province, and the Turkish government just hasn't really been doing much about it. Uh, more recently, the big news was that there was a, a Syrian government attack that the suspicion is it was an accident, that they accidentally killed some Turkish observer troops. So the Turkish government came out and made a lot of uh, bombastic threats. They said that they killed something like 70 uh, Syrian troops in a, in a retaliatory attack, but that wasn't really confirmed. I think some uh, rebel troops on the ground said that they had actually killed maybe like eight Syrian troops in the retaliation. But regardless, there was a retaliation and there was a question of whether uh, that signified greater Turkish involvement. You know, maybe uh, the fact that they're willing to actually violently retaliate here means that they'll get more involved. Uh, but it seems that the answer is probably going to be no. So, and the reason I say that is uh, they've been reaching out to Russia. Uh, they've said that Russia should stay out of it, you know, that this is a local thing between uh, the Turkish government and the Syrian government. But they haven't really been sending signals that they're really going to push into Syria or significantly prop up the rebels any more than they already were. Uh, my impression, based on what I've heard from uh, Turkish government press releases, is that they're sending out signals to Russia to try to negotiate how to stage manage it. Because the Turkish government can't do nothing. They can't, uh, you know, it looks bad for the Turkish government to have Turkish troops killed and then not do any, anything about it. But uh, the fact that they're trying to, they're sending out these signals to Russia to try to negotiate with them over it kind of suggests to me that they're not really that interested in a, a strong response that really changes their policy in the region. It seems like the policy is still to kind of take a back seat and uh, let Idlib province slowly be retaken. Uh, that's not to say that they're not going to be involved in Syria. You know, obviously they're very active uh, on the Kurdish part of the border. You know, in eastern Syria where the Kurds are, the Turks have been very active. And I suspect that's really where the focus uh, of their Syria policy mainly is. So they're not really interested in Idlib province at this point, but I think that's because they're mostly focused on that eastern region. And uh, they may even try to relocate some of their allied uh, Syrian troops, the Syrian rebels that they're backing. They may try to relocate all of them over to that border region in the east to try to act as a buffer between Turkey and uh, the Kurdish YPG and other PKK-aligned groups in that Kurdish eastern territory. So that being the case, uh, I don't think that there's going to be a lot of traction here. I think there's going to be a negotiation between Russia and Turkey and that they're going to hash out some deal where uh, maybe there's some kind of compensation or maybe the Syrian government gets to have a, you know, maybe further retaliation or maybe the Syrian government agrees to slow down the pace of their advance or there's another showpiece uh, ceasefire agreement. But what I don't think is going to happen is that the Syrian government stops pushing into Idlib province. That seems pretty unlikely to me. I think Russia would probably like it if they would. <laughs> the Russian government doesn't want tension with Turkey. You know, they would prefer to have stronger relations with Turkey since Turkey is such an important country in the Middle East. It's a lot more important than the Syrian government. So having good relations with Turkey is a lot more important to Moscow than uh, having good relations with Syria. But they are backing the Syrian government and they do want to try to show their commitment to their ally. Uh, by trying to continue backing them until they can restore government control over all of the territory that they have lost over the course of the civil war. So having tension between Syria and Turkey just puts the Russian government in an awkward position that they would rather not be in. 
So I'm sure they've been telling the Syrian government to try to pull back and show some restraint. But uh, the Syrian government, of course, isn't that interested in that. They would prefer to have their territory back. So they've been pushing regardless. Uh, you know, that's the trouble with having uh, allies that you don't have a whole lot of leverage over. You know, the, you may want them to do one thing, but if you don't have enough leverage, you kind of can't make them. You know, the United States has uh, lots of experience with that in places like Afghanistan or earlier on in uh, South Vietnam, where they kind of uh, where the client state thought that uh, the United States wanted to be there. Uh, more than the client state wanted them to be there. And so the leverage was more with the client state and they could kind of just do whatever they wanted. So that's kind of what's happening in Syria. The Syrian government figures that Russia wants to be there more than the Syrian government needs them to be there. And so long as that's the case, they're going to continue to do whatever the hell they want. And it's uh, interesting, soft pressure versus hard pressure. It seems like the soft pressure is we would really like you to do this a certain way because in the past we've been an influence and in the future we would like to be, but they're not going to contest them militarily. It's just a, a thing that affects their reputation, I guess you could say. Russia's <clears throat> going to be mad at you, Syria. <laughs> yeah, I don't think much will come of it. I think, if I think it, in a sense, it was probably a matter of time, I guess, until the Syrian government started to take back territory. It's been a, a long process, this whole yeah. story. Yeah, it's been the Civil War is definitely has definitely lasted a lot longer than uh, anybody really expected it to. Well, mm -hmm. let me rephrase that. It happened. It's dragged out for longer than anybody ever wanted it to. There were some people who thought that it might, just based on the experience of Lebanon during its civil war, but people kind of hoping it wouldn't end up like that. It did, unfortunately. So it's uh, it's just kind of been lingering. You know, we've we've talked about it before. That the lack of uh, clarity in the U.S. position in Syria kind of makes it hard for the other players to calibrate their policies. So that makes it hard to reach an end game. That's uh, mm -hmm. still the case, incidentally. But uh, the Turkish government significantly has been focusing more on eastern Syria and the Kurds than on western Syria and the Syrian government. So that's been the principal change, and that kind of accounts for the changes that are happening on the ground. But there's still no real end in sight. You know, it's not... The Turkish government has not really acted strongly thus far, but that doesn't mean that they wouldn't act... Uh, later on, you know, there may be some red line that we don't know about where they would not tolerate Syrian government control within X amount of miles within the Turkish border. So they may try to retain some uh, presence. That is to say, they may try to re retain some rebel presence uh, within some distance of the Turkish border in Idlib province. That's not really clear, but that could happen still. I don't know. It's it's unclear right now how there's going to be uh, any kind of equilibrium in the Syrian conflict. So I would say for the foreseeable future, it's going to continue dragging out. Well, hopefully they can get some stability, start to rebuild and stuff. Someone was asking about the economics of war because I was introducing you in the world discussion segment and saying that if you want to Talk about current events, economics, or war, and they were like, what about the current war economic events? 
and their impacts. It's like, well, we're probably going to get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's kind of it. I mean, uh, war, I think, sucks. We've agreed that it sucks for half of the people involved, at least, if not more. Mm -hmm. And there is a, a take. There are some spoils of war. The winner can control territory, extract some stuff from there. But for the population of Earth overall, it's a zero-sum game. And then with something like this in Syria, not having control of your own country is pretty annoying for maximizing its economy and potential. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely not great. You know, that kind of goes back to guns and butter, you know, obviously. In economics, there's this uh, notion that uh, guns and butter, you know, an economy can choose between how much of its resources it invests into uh, the military, you know, something like, you know, guns, planes, what have you, and then something like uh, uh, productive investments like capital investments or, you know, et cetera. You know, that's the proverbial butter. So when there's a war going on, obviously the ratio gets skewed heavily towards guns over butter, and that uh, has a pretty deleterious effect economically since all of that uh, represents resources that could have been invested in capital. And that's significant because capital is what produces stuff, you know, that the more capital you have, the more production you have. So not only are you losing out on a short-term gain, you know, you're losing out on resources that could have been spent on uh, welfare or, you know, on people or et cetera. You're also losing out on the future production you could have had by investing it into capital that returns, uh, that re gives you a return over the long term. So war definitely comes with a significant opportunity cost. It is not an optimal choice. Unless it is forced upon you, which does happen sometimes. Oh yeah, yeah. Context matters. You know, if it's not, uh, if you have no choice, then, and maybe even if you do have a choice, it can still be warranted, depending on context. But economically speaking, it's it's never really a good choice. Although I guess even that depends on context. I guess if you're Japan and you've been cut off from your major oil importer, maybe then it kind of makes go out and seize some assets. We've talked about that before. Mm -hmm. Uh-oh, sounds like you're kind of disconnected. Oh, can you still hear me? Yeah, there was some, like, snap, crackle, pop of your audio. I don't know if that's the headphones or headset. That's yeah, probably the headphones. I'll try to get that fixed. Actually, I was going to ask you, what was, uh, you were months ago, a microphone that I could buy, because I was thinking of buying oh, yeah. a mic. You were Blue Yeti is usually what people start out with. Yeti, okay. Yeah, that one, you could just have it resting on your desk. It's pretty simple to use, just a USB plug-in and make sure that it's facing you and you're good to go. <laughs> the chat is joking about my microphone. <laughs> I have the like professional-grade one that they use on Joe Rogan and stuff, which is a lot more expensive, and they're a lot more parts in it well, yeah for a starter mic that's a reasonable price point the blue yeti is good bang for your buck that's what i use for a good six years of streaming gotcha yep i'll definitely look into that then it's probably not going to impress people if you're trying to brag about a microphone at a dinner party but to get the job done it's fine <laughs> i think i'll be safe i can't remember the last time i was at a dinner party
Okay. Well, if you do want to go to a dinner party and brag about microphones, <laughs> you can just ask us, and then we can give you a list of impressive ones you can tell people about. Well, there we go. We have a lot of cool audio and technical experts around the stream and channel, and they've actually been one of the driving forces in figuring out these kind of things. I don't know, that kind of stuff. But you can't go with everyone's opinion because they disagree. So you basically got to pick some people who you trust to make a recommendation and then go with that. Gotcha. Yo, Fuzzy Cord, if you've got an idea that you think would be an economical choice for him, that would be better than the Yeti, I would go with yours. So you could either send it to me or send it to him. Fuzzy Cord is a music man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he knows a lot more about audio than I do. We did a music discussion stream on Thursday and he hears stuff and he can tell you what the time signature is. And oftentimes the different effects that are being used on a guitar and the history of that. And it's pretty sweet stuff that I don't know very much about. Oh. I listen to music and I think to myself, yes, <laughs> <laughs> I like this music. Other people, they hear it and they know kind of the magic of how it's made. Interesting. And you need audio recording for both being in a band and also doing a podcast. Ouch. Any recommendations are certainly appreciated. Cool. So Syria, it's got some fire to it. Things are going on there. There are people asking about the U.S. election, so I think we're leading into primaries. Is there anything of note here? I know there's the usual wag the dog of an election cycle. Of, freedom jobs! Freedom jobs! We get that. Yeah. But is there anything that's kind of out of the ordinary, unusual, coming up? Coming up? Not that I know of. You know, we've got primary season starting up, so there's that. So, you know, we've got, uh, I think we just had the Iowa primary, mm -hmm. the Iowa caucuses. Did you follow that at all? No, but isn't that one of the first ones? So a lot of people look to it to see the yeah. results. Yeah, it turned into a shit show this year. Oh, why? <clears throat> so what happened was that uh, normally uh, the results are reported by phone uh, to DNC headquarters or wherever it is or whatever headquarters it is that they run it from. But this year they were going to try to do it via an app that uh, they sent that they uh, were going to make available uh, to the people in the individual localities. But apparently a whole bunch of those people uh, thought it was too complicated or didn't install it and just tried to use the phones instead. Uh, just tried to call in the results like they would normally do. And there apparently was not sufficient staff operating the phones at headquarters to... Uh, process all of the information you know a lot of people couldn't get through couldn't get anybody to answer the phone so there was a big uh, cluster fudge over that because they weren't able to process the results and have them available in a timely manner mm -hmm. <clears throat> so they had to do a recount and so that led to delays and it just kind of made uh, made the party look bad in general it's just bad organization not a great look mm -hmm. Yeah, well, whenever you're using a new technology, I think the first time you use it, you should expect it to be terrible. 
as a rule. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much what it came down to. I don't even really know why they bothered with it. I don't know mm -hmm. why that would have been a lot more efficient than just doing it the normal way. But yeah, like you say, you know, whenever there's a rollout, it's always a problem. There's always something that goes wrong somewhere. Yep. <clears throat> it's nice in Washington they have voting by mail. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty handy. Solve some problems. Mm -hmm. Don't have to worry about uh, election day crowds or, you know, making time in your schedule, that kind of thing. Yeah, usually for me, the crowds haven't been that big of a deal. Usually you go to a local school or library or something, and it's not really very hard. You go up to a machine that it's kind of funny because they roll out new technology so infrequently that it's almost like going through a time machine back 15 years <laughs> to vote. Well, yeah, that's, that's the price you pay for uh, confidence. Mm -hmm. you know, once it's been once the technology is older, then you can trust it a little more. But that takes time, so there's always kind of a delay between uh, the unveiling, the release of new technology, and its adoption in uh, sensitive areas. Gosh, what would uh, I guess while we have a moment here, there was a someone posting the last time when we were talking about um, France and some of and their pension reform there. And uh, there was a guy named free BSD rocks. I think I'm not, however it's pronounced. Yep. And uh, they offered up a bunch of corrections and whatnot about uh, some of the things I was talking about. So uh, much appreciation to free BSD for pitching in there. I've got the notes here, but I haven't really organized them well enough to kind of dig into it. And I've added some things when I was, reading more into it. So I'll try to return to that next week to try to have some more substantive commentary on the pension reforms there that incorporate the corrections that you made. So thank you for participating. It was certainly very enlightening to read through the comments that you made. This might be a good time for the usual disclaimer. I'm not an expert in everything I talk about, as I'm sure is woefully apparent. So uh, any, if I say anything stupid, wrong, or biased, please do contribute in chat. Uh, you know, if I'm wrong, I want to know more than anybody. So uh, participation is encouraged in that regard. I'm not. You've already got a microphone recommendation for you. Oh, cool. Thanks. Thank you. Well, was there any particular region of the world that you wanted to get into? I've got some stuff on India. Let's hit that. I say Africa a lot of the time. I haven't said India, but now I have. <laughs> also, I just sent you that microphone on Discord. Chat can correct me if that was the wrong one. But it looks like a similar price point to the Yeti. Gotcha. That's the XLR version. Okay, well, give me the correct version, and I'll pass along to him. USB version, yeah. Ain't nobody got time for XLR. What is that technology? <laughs> so you said India stuff is going down. Oh, uh, yeah. So with India, I think we've talked a little bit about the refugee bill that was passed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So it has to do with that. There's been, uh, ever since the Indian government has announced that they're going to do that, there have been rolling protests. And the protests started out pretty small, but they've been increasing over time. And so at first I didn't really think much of them because they were mostly centered in uh, universities. And, you know, the public, you know, sometimes that can be a catalyst for more protests, but generally not. But in this case, it does seem to be spreading. And I think that's partly to do with university protests, but also with the fact that the government hasn't really backed down, even though there's been all of this opposition to it. So it seems like this is turning into a substantive issue for the Indian government and for Indian politics generally. So let me see if I can figure out where I had this. Oh, here we go. So the protests have been mostly been in, focused in uh, states in India where the BJ, BJP is not in power uh, or where the BJP doesn't have as much support. So places like Deakin, West Bengal, etc. Uh, larger cities, even in areas where they are in power, have also seen relatively more protests. So the government thus far has not really given any ground. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any indication that they're willing to give concessions. They're saying that the the refugee bill is going to go through, and uh, they've also now allocated funds for a quote-unquote comprehensive census that they're calling the National Population Register. And they say that this is going to be intended to, this is intended to create a database of every resident in India, which would be controversial, I think, in most any country. Uh, the opposition in India is saying that it's going to be a prelude to uh, an NRC. And the NRC is what the, the Indian government already did in uh, West Bengal a while back. That was sort of the prelude to the whole refugee bill thing. Uh, this is when they were trying to determine the citizenship of every citizen in West Bengal. And I think also in some Assam states. Uh, well, Assam is a state. Some of the eastern states. Uh, the idea was that the, the government suspects there's a lot of, has been, a lot of illegal immigration into uh, its eastern states. And so they wanted to try to go in and uh, verify the citizenship of everybody who was living there to make sure everybody had been a citizen uh, before 1972, when the war in Bang when the uh, Bangladeshi War of Independence happened. And uh, after that happened, there was a pretty decent flow of Bangladeshi refugees of one sort or another into India. And there's also been a pretty porous border since then, so there's probably been people moving back and forth. Uh, over the past couple decades, just generally. So the Indian government wanted to go in and check that, but the Indian government had not been enforcing that for so long that there was a lot of people who just kind of been living there with unclear status who didn't really think it mattered. So there's not really a lot of documentation that people have been maintaining that they would need to try to prove that they do have citizenship and that they do belong there. So even for people who were citizens before 1972, sometimes they might have trouble proving that they are actually citizens just due to the lack of documentation. So that program did not was not fully completed. They actually did eventually, I think, scrap it midway through uh, because it was affecting so many people who were uh, just legit citizens, but uh, who could not necessarily prove it due to lack of documentation. Given that the program was kind of targeted implicitly at Muslims, uh, the suspicion is that the government was inconveniencing too, inconveniencing too many Hindu voters, and that that was the reason that they pulled out. Uh, but that's kind of you know conjecture. Uh, regardless, the refugee bill ties into that because that's uh, 
kind of a way to give the Hindus who might be unpressured because of that program, they would have a way of staying in India. You know, even if you can't, even if you don't have the documentation to prove you're a citizen, you could still stay because they could just give you refugee status and then problem solved. But the refugee status is only available to Hindus, Jains, Buddhists, etc. Everybody pretty much but Muslims. And that's sort of why uh, the opposition, that's why the opposition in India, in India, uh, sees the refugee bill as discriminatory. They think that it's just the lead-in for uh, another attempt to implement the NRC, uh, that is to say the attempt to deport people who are not really citizens. Uh, they just think that it's a way of doing it without inconveniencing Hindu voters. So that's the logic there, and uh, the fact that the government is pushing for a census, as what is what they're calling it, the suspicion is that the census is going to be a sort of stealth way of uh, judging people's citizenship and that it's going to be used later as a way to try to deport people who have unclear citizenship status. And the fact that they're doing that is, again, part of the reason, part of is evidence that the government is doubling down on its position and that they're not backing off. So just to kind of comment generally on it, I'm not really sure why the government is pushing so hard for it. I don't think it's going to necessarily be a big vote winner for them. But uh, for the people who are their hardcore supporters, they seem to really support it. And I guess the government is turning it into a media thing uh, where it's more not really so much about the substance of the policy, but more about the optics of uh, passing something that's very popular with their core voters and getting it done against the face of a uh, very strong opposition. So it, again, the sub substance of the policy is not really that great. I don't think it really means, it's going to really mean a whole lot in the long term, but uh, in so much as it's kind of turned into a partisan game, it matters in that way. So I suspect that's kind of more the contours of uh, what it's going to turn into. So it looks like they're going to push it through regardless of opposition, which I think they kind of have the votes to do in uh, India's government. So I think mostly they're going to try to milk it for national publicity. Um, but it's also possible they might be trying to pass it through to uh, get the strategic benefit of deporting Muslims. Muslims don't really support the B BJP, so if they can deport them, uh, that just kind of makes them more, that gives them relatively more support within state legislatures and nationally. So that could be it, but I don't really think that would be that big an edge, at least not enough to justify all of this pressure. So it could be, but I'm a little skeptical. Um, another possibility is that they want to use that census that they're trying to do for something else entirely. And, you know, who knows what that could be, but uh, that's just a possibility. So we'll see. We'll see what they actually plan on doing here. But uh, the main takeaway thus far, though, is that the Modi government is pushing pretty hard, has been pushing hard uh, in terms of policy since they won big in the last election. And they, they had a pretty strong showing. The, the last election was pretty recent. So that's why India has been in the news so much. You know, Kashmir was in the news uh, a couple months ago with how they forcibly, more or less forcibly, made it into a union territory instead of a normal state. So that was a very bold move on their part, and now they seem to be moving pretty boldly on this uh, citizenship issue. So I don't know if the, I don't know if they think that this is a way to try to maintain the support of their core supporters, given that they haven't really been able to deal with the economy, which is a big issue in India right now. Um, you know, that's 
that's as good a theory as any at this point. But for whatever the reason, the government has been very aggressive and pushing dramatic legislation lately. And that seems likely to continue, given that they have a pretty clear majority in uh, India's legislature. So we'll probably be hearing more about India in the news uh, in the near future over the course of the next year or so. Uh, whether or not it's good news or not is pretty debatable. <laughs> Certainly India's opposition parties are extremely skeptical. Uh, but there could definitely be some fireworks there, given the uh, strength of the protest movement that seems to be snowballing. <clears throat> uh, let's see, I had another note here. Uh, oh, the fact that immigration was an issue to begin with illustrates bureaucratic inefficiency and uh, the difficulty of enforcing long border the long border with Bangladesh. Yeah, just... Uh, the lack of enforcement of the border had to do with lack of administrative capacity. It's just kind of too difficult. It would be difficult even for a relatively wealthy country to really police it. And India is not really very wealthy. So it's just very hard to, to dedicate the resources necessary to stop any uh, substantive outflows and inflows of migrants. <clears throat> so the fact that they're just suddenly making this an issue now is kind of telling. Uh, it wasn't really a substantive issue before, but now it suddenly is. So that, that kind of is evidence that it is more about uh, optics, more about posturing than anything. So keep an eye on India. There was another thing I had um, about some states were passing laws at a state level, not a national level, but a state level, in which they were saying that uh, they would not cooperate with the census. So... Uh, if the government does pass that uh, bill to uh, organize that national census, there could be some states that don't cooperate. But the Indian government is arguing that legally they would be obligated to cooperate uh, because of the way the Indian constitution is written. So this could turn into a constitutional crisis where the national government and the state level, certain state level governments uh, are at odds with each other. And uh, that could be, you know, Along with the protest movement, that could also lead with lead to fireworks. So, politics in India are getting interesting. That's the that's the short version of that. Uh, we'll see what happens. Seems like there's a good bit of stuff happening lately. I guess the world always has things going on. Well, I mean, it's all just uh, part of this. We've talked before about the overarching reasons for it, you know, the sort of structural economic change that creates disenchantment, uh, upsets voters, and then the populist wave that resulted all over the world. So a lot of this is just different manifestations of populism in response to uh, economic changes of one sort or another. In the case of India, it works a little differently, because in the case of India, it's not deindustrialization. It's not necessarily people upset. Uh, with the status quo, but it's more a result of economic growth. You know, there was a lot of, India started from a very relatively poor base, economically speaking. And uh, as they've developed, you know, there's been more rapid economic development uh, over the past 30-some years, ever since the economy was uh, partially liberalized anyway. It was never fully liberalized, but partial liberalization starting in the uh, late 80s, early 90s has led to substantive economic growth, much greater than there was before, and the result of that is that there's a huge new middle class that's emerged in India. And they have very different perspectives of how India should be governed. You know, historically speaking, politicians in India were generally economic and political 
uh, well, historically speaking, economic and political elites in India were generally educated, relatively well educated. And uh, generally their education was Western in nature. They were educated in Western institutions in Europe, or they were educated in Westernized institutions within India. And so that meant that they were relatively Anglophile and they had European notions of governance and it would have been relatively familiar, basically, to uh, Europeans. But the new middle class that's emerging doesn't really have those same ties uh, to European-style liberal governance. Uh, their connection to liberalism is more limited. And uh, they're more attracted, in turn, to traditionalist notions of Hinduism and uh, having a strong role for Hinduism in government. You know, So that's, that's sort of where that tension comes from, where that populist that populism comes from. That's not really how Modi got elected in the first place. Modi originally got elected by catering to the business community. You know, he'd uh, always had pretty strong ties to the socially conservative people in the Indian politics, the Hindutva and whatnot, but uh, the real core of his original political coalition were businessmen whom did not like the uh, continued weight of regulation in India's economy. You know, there's always been a lot of India's economy has always been heavily regulated since independence. Uh, it's the, the load has lightened a bit since liberalization, but it's still a problem. So there was lots of businessmen who wanted the Modi government to take liberalization to the next level and to open up the economy and let them compete. But uh, since that time, he hasn't really been able to deliver that. The Indian economy has not been cooperative. Global trends have not been cooperative. And of course, political opposition in the legislature uh, has blocked a lot of attempts to implement significant reforms. And even a lot of people within his own political party have been uh, opposed to substantive political economic liberalization uh, because it threatens a lot of established interests, uh, especially uh, groups like local retailers uh, who were very opposed to the introduction of uh, international retail corporations. Um, and it's difficult to get manufacturing in because a lot of people don't want to sell their land. You know, land procurement is very difficult in India. So that makes it hard for international manufacturing companies to come in and set up shop and kind of create the kind of manufacturing boom that the, the Modi government would like. So because of the lack of economic development, the Modi government has been shifting to focus more on the social conservative part of their campaign platform. And the result has been a lot of the fireworks that we've been seeing recently, you know, Kashmir and the citizenship law in particular are manifestations of that. I'm sure Narendra Modi would like to f focus more on reforming India's economy. That's definitely where the focus was in the early part of his first term in office. But uh, as that became more and more difficult, uh, nor the, close to the second term of second half of his uh, first term in office, he started focusing more on social conservative type policy making. And now in the first part of his uh, second term in office, so to speak, they don't really have terms in office in India, but just roughly speaking, his uh, second term, you know, his second election victory, the early going uh, seems to be heavily focused on social conservative stuff. So what that means in the long run, if he's going to use that maybe as a way to try to sneak in economic reform later, or if this, this is just... Uh, part of Indian populism that he unleashed and now can't control. That's not really clear yet. You know, that's kind of something we'll have to watch in the future. But uh, that's, that's just India's particular manifestation of uh, populism that you can kind of see happening everywhere. What is the logical next wave? If there's a populist wave, what comes next? 
in a general sense? Hmm. Well, I mean, Do we know, or is this a new thing that doesn't have precedent? Um. I mean, what's the old saying? History, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. I think I can't remember who said that. There's some. Basically, yes, it has precedent. There have been periods of populism before. But I think each iteration is pretty unique. You know, each iteration happens for unique reasons. And I think it tur in turn, they play out differently. And the response in turn is also different. So, I mean, the last time there was a major outbreak of populism worldwide was uh, the 1930s. And that didn't end well. <laughs> for those who yeah. don't remember, that didn't end well at all. But uh, the reason for the 1930s outbreak was, you know, the Great, the great Depression, uh, you know, leftover issues from World War I and the 1920s. I mean, a lot of that stuff was pretty distinctive for the time period. Uh, now it has less to do with economic depression and more to do with cultural tension. You know, globalization has shrunk the cultural space in the world, and the result is that a lot of traditions and norms are being challenged. And uh, that's a problem for a lot of social conservatives, but it's also a problem for a lot of established industries that are disadvantaged by globalization. You know, as the world becomes more globally integrated, certain industries definitely benefit. You know, you can find industries in any given country that benefit from globalization, but there's always industries that also lose out. And uh, in so much as those industries are powerful or employ a lot of people or are very influential, uh, their decline creates problems politically. You know, the more powerful politically they were, the more problems politically they cause as they decline uh, in resistance to globalization. So, I mean, in a sense, the problems we have now are not because of economic uh, decline, which was kind of the case with the Great Depression back in the 1930s. Now it's more rich man's disease. You know, now the globalization, the economic growth caused by globalization has been so successful that it's uh, kind of creating new problems, that it's become a problem unto itself that has to be resolved. You know, a lot of that ties into the economic structural change, structural economic change, which we've talked so much about. Just the destruction of traditional livelihoods is creating a lot of economic uncertainty and anxiety, and nobody really knows how to deal with it. You know, nobody really knows what the new thing is. You know, how do you make a life for yourself in a modern economy? How do you prepare uh, for the tumult of living in, econo in economies that are constantly being buffeted by new technological innovations? You know, we don't really have answers to that question yet. Um, you know, we've got some early returns, but it's not really enough to really solve the problem. And there's also just a, a lot of demographic overhang where you have a lot of people who spent their whole careers uh, in old traditional industries that are now in decline. And those people uh, lose out in particular because they can't really retrain. It's harder for them to suddenly shift gears after spending decades in one industry learning one set of skills to turn around and learn a new set of skills. So because there's a disproportionately large, uh, because that particular part of the population is disproportionately large because of demographic aging happening in a lot of the developing world and also in places like China, uh, they have a disproportionately loud voice that's causing problems, that's causing disruption uh, to globalization. So... Economic disruption and social disruption, I think, just from globalization, are more the core of the populist wave that we're seeing right now. And in turn, I think whatever the response is, whatever the next 
you know, the next shift in the, the next political trend, I guess, whatever that is, is going to be heavily dependent on how we deal with that populist trend, how, how we deal with global populism, or more accurately, how individual countries deal with it. And I think over time, we'll see that kind of slowly emerge and have an idea of what that looks like. But for now, I don't think we can really say based on precedent what it's going to look like, what the response to populism will look like, and what the next political trend will be. It's, uh, I think it's just too proprietary. It's just too dependent on the unique circumstances of each iteration to really make a solid prediction. Uh, in so much as we can make a prediction, probably I suspect there will be some kind of return to globalization, but with more regulation and more restrictions to try to control the rougher edges. You know, I think in general that's a trend you see in a lot of countries, especially in the United States, where there's a big debate about whether or not uh, the government should be trying to do more to ease uh, the disruption that's been caused by globalization. You know, Trump won big running on that very issue, you know, the American carnage, as he said in his inauguration. So certainly figuring out some way to deal with the tension created by globalization, but while also continuing to extract its benefit, its benefits, I think that's going to color the future, the next political trend. You know, for now, it's more of a, the populist trend right now is more guttural. You know, it's more of an emotive response. But there hasn't really been a lot of substantive policy making that's actually addressed that specific issue. There are other issues that have been addressed, and there are other peripheral things that have been done to address it. But, you know, the core of the issue, structural economic change, has not been substantively addressed yet. And so the trends that are, that are being driven by structural economic change, they've continued unabated. And it seems likely that um, at this point, if current trends continue, if structural economic change continues not to be substantively addressed, I expect that the way that we end up dealing with it is to just let it play out. So the cohort of people who have lost out from it, they'll just age out. And then the younger workers who enter the workforce, uh, they're going to enter it and just go to the industries that are healthy. And then so then they become, as they age, the new constituency that votes in favor of um, globalization or some form of regulated globalization. So in that sense, the system just sort of self, the problem self-corrects in that way. We just age into a new world where uh, the status quo is just normal and where the people who are challenging it the most just kind of lose support as they age out of the population. Hmm. That seems to be the direction we're heading right now because, again, nothing really substantively is being done to really address how to uh, how economies are changing and how people are being disrupted from the traditional livelihoods. Did you just, in a really academic, long-winded way, say that the future belongs to the Zoomers? <laughs> <laughs> well, it does. I mean, it uh, pretty much does. Well, us grumpy old millennials can just say back in my day. <laughs> <laughs> well, we probably will. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think demographic not demographic transition because that's an actual theory but yeah i think just uh the slow ebb of time and just the inherent demographic changes that are coming and just the weight of uh the benefits of globalization and structural changes in the economy i think all of that will work in favor of the status quo and i think um whatever changes are made to try to deal with the disruptions that have been caused are probably going to be cosmetic that's largely what the Trump administration has been. The Trump administration has largely been a cosmetic response to uh, 
the problems that have been caused uh, by globalization in the United States and the disruptions thereof. And uh, I mean, it's working. That people really support the Trump administration and seem to think he's doing a good job. So that means what that means in effect is that uh, Donald Trump is appeasing anger at globalization without actually challenging it, which I guess is an ideal outcome if you're uh, in favor of globalization. So that's a substantive win for everybody, <laughs> so much as globalization benefits everybody. Yeah, he's setting his stance against it, but he's not really leading a crusade against it. Yeah. So, Yeah, that was the big thing I was interested in after he got elected. You know, what is Donald Trump going to do about international trade and etc.? And he hasn't really done much. There's been a lot of anxiety about what he might do, but whenever he's actually acted on it, there hasn't really been a lot of disruption. You know, the changes have been relatively minor. So yeah, that's... Other than that, everything else is pretty much theater. His administration really hasn't done a whole lot. I mean, I think the big ticket items are uh, deregulation, uh, the tax cuts, and... I, was about, I think there was one other big thing that was actually passed, but I don't quite remember what it was. It's slipping my mind. But I think uh, all of that was, other than deregulation, it was all initiated in Congress. You know, the tax cuts were initiated in Congress, and Trump pretty much just went along with it. So I don't know that that's really a Trump administration achievement per se. Uh, deregulation has been, you know, that's administrative agency management. So that's definitely something the president has control over. Uh, so that's to his credit. But other than that, there hasn't really been like a whole lot of like uh, blue chip legislative reforms that have been passed. You know, partly that's just because of partisan gridlock, but, you know, the Trump administration itself can't really say, I don't think, that uh, it's really been able to achieve a whole lot beyond superficial stuff. They were able to negotiate a new deal with Mexico and Canada with uh, what is it called USMCA, basically the new NAFTA deal. But uh, that ended up being pretty bipartisan, so that was an achievement. You know, that was to his credit. But it, you know, I think his supporters were kind of hoping that he would change it in a way that would uh, result in a lot of manufacturing jobs coming back to the U.S. And you know, seeing what was in the final agreement, it doesn't seem likely that that's going to happen. But people don't seem to mind. You know, he still has uh, very high support amongst his core supporters, so it doesn't really seem to matter that much. So in so much as, uh, you know, if I'm right that this is just a transition phase that we're in to a new equilibrium in which our previous status quo was, in which our previous status quo becomes normal, um, all of this is for the good. You know, we're, Donald Trump is easing our way into the new world, <laughs> I guess you could say. So a lot of uh, a lot of posturing, but not a lot of major change. It seems like we did talk about his archetype as being a strongman leader, where you talk a really big game, talks and smack, you know, few people on their toes, that kind of thing. Yeah. And people have liked that because it <clears throat> gives him the persona of an outsider politician, not actually being an outsider because he's rubbed shoulders with uh, 
Clintons and a lot of key people for a very long time. But yeah, definitely having that image. Image management is something that I'm aware of as a streamer. On Twitch, you have who you are as a person, and then you have how that website and the people who browse that website perceive you. And certain people have brands that are closer to or more distant from their actual selves. So are you playing a character on your stream or are you being yourself or are you doing some uh, mixture of the two? Mm-hmm. And you could do the same thing for politicians. Like, is this politician playing a character that they think is a winning character that's going to get them a lot of votes or is this actually who they are? It can be tough to tell. Yeah. Close friends and family, people who have known the person for a long time are probably going to know the answer to that, but voters, it's difficult. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. I've, just on a personal level, feel frustrated with the trend of seeing parties pretty much always vote within their own line, so you're voting for party unity rather than for whatever issue is being brought up. It's so rare for someone to vote outside of it that that makes the news, but my uh, democracy, liberty, representation, soul wants people to vote with their conscience and intuition and research rather than with their party lines. But yeah, well, good luck. With that'll that. probably take a while. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll have to get we'll have to get really fed up with it. I think there are some people who are grumpy about it, but that's not enough to motivate change you need pretty much everybody to be really angry about it yeah well i mean it's people have just very divergent views of uh what's in the national interest but they also you know part of what informs people's political preferences is their own personal interest and there's a lot of personal interests that are just inherently divergent so there's inherently going to be conflict there And uh, given that the United States now is, what, 300 plus million people, you know, very different regions, different regional cultures, you know, it seems like the cleavages are only going to grow in a structural sense. But that doesn't mean that there has to be a partisan gridlock. You know, there can be solutions to some of the thornier problems. And it seems like, you know, like you say, there's more of a focus on the partisan competition than there is in substantive policymaking which makes it difficult to really actually try to address some of these issues that are driving uh, the tension. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting too, because if you put yourself in the position of the politician who votes for their party, are you doing that because you're, you just love the party so much? Like you wake up in the morning, you're like, you know, what's great being a Republican. And that's like your jam. (laughs) So whenever anything is put up to vote, you just get so fired up that you get to vote Republican that you do that every time? Or is it that your ideas and your orientation are so much in that direction that there's no way that you would vote the other way? That's another reason. And then another one would be that you feel such heavy pressure on your career to vote in that direction that you don't have any other alternative. Yeah. Yeah, I suspect that's... That's more, I mean, you know, I think we saw that at play with the Trump impeachment trial. You know, there probably are a lot of Republicans in the Senate who are not really super into Donald Trump and his style of politics. But I think uh, a lot of them just feel like uh, in order to represent their constituents, they have to vote for him. They have to vote. They had to vote to uh, acquit him. Mm -hmm. So that. 
that's a relevant factor there. There's just a lot of legitimate uh, differences there that they're trying to represent. Makes it seem very different from a trial because you think about a trial usually involving a randomly selected jury <laughs> yeah. to try to keep it unbiased. And this is like trying to have the most biased jury that you possibly can. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was. I mean, with impeachment, it's hard to kind of design a mechanism that everybody can agree on that's really going to be impartial. I mean, yeah. it's just inherently difficult, institutionally speaking, to create a mechanism like that. So I think uh, the U.S. system is pretty much designed to just try to give the people a voice through their representatives. And obviously, you know, there's a debate there about how representative the U.S. Senate really is at this point. But uh, sort of that's what I think was uh, the original designers is what the, re the original designers had in mind. You know, if uh, the president of the United States is going to be removed from office, uh, the representatives of the public should have a role in that. And so they tried to design a mechanism around that idea. <clears throat> So on the plus side, that means that uh, the president can't really be removed arbitrarily, you know, in so much as the public voice influence sen influences senators, then the public voice in turn will influence how they vote on whether to remove a president. But the downside is that partisanship can skew that process pretty substantively, which I think we've seen at this point. I mean, it's not even the first time we've seen it. You know, I mean, back in the 90s, Clinton was impeached with a very similar sort of set of partisan circumstances. So it's, uh, it's just a difficult process to do in any way that the broader part of the population would consider impartial. I don't know that you can do a whole lot better. You could try. I mean, I'm, it would not be hard to design a mechanism realistically that would involve uh, impartiality. But the trouble is, how do you design a system like that that people do not perceive to be inherently biased? Yeah, well, I was thinking it was biased in both directions, not just that Republicans are going to vote in favor of them because it's their party, but Democrats are the enemies of Republicans. So him getting impeached would be bad for the Republican Party, which is good for them. Mm -hmm. So on either side, there's a reason to like vote with your bias rather than with the evidence. Yeah. Fuzzyco was joking in the chat and saying, just find 12 people who have never heard of Donald Trump to be the jury. <laughs> yeah, it's a tall order. It's a tall order. But ideally, you know, he's a polarizing figure too, though. Yeah, he, you know, he kind of goes out of his way to be a troll. That doesn't help things. <laughs> no, he's probably one of the most trolly presidents the U.S. has had in its history. You know, that that kind of brings me to the next point. You know, the real solution to that impeachment design problem is to have a, a political culture where democratic norms are respected and where people try their best uh, to uphold uh, the highest standards of civic discourse and try to uh, emphasize the national interest over and above partisan interests. And obviously you can define those things in very different ways, but ideally there would be some consensus that uh, different political factions could work around and unite over. So unfortunately we don't really quite have that right now. 
suffice to say. And Donald Trump himself is not particularly helping in that regard. But, you know, it is what it is. Again, it's a transitional phase that we're in, and hopefully this is just a, a temporary matter. <laughs> hopefully this is a temporary phase, and we can get to a point where everybody is on the same page, and uh, we have some policy that has some actual consensus behind it, and where democratic uh, governance is uh, returns to a healthy stage. Mm-hmm. But that all remains to be seen for now. Wait, you're basically saying that it has to be cool for it to be a honest politician for that to work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that, pretty much that's what it comes down to. You would need to have a much stronger, healthier, healthier political culture with uh, more responsible political actors. But also not only that, but a more responsible voting public. You know, it's they didn't get in there by accident. <laughs> you know, if we have shitheads yeah. in office, it's because we voted them in. So, you know, the voters are culpable in this as well. It's not just the politicians. Yeah, I think a lot of people have many of their basic emotional biases that are used against them on a very frequent basis. I mean, just watch the presidential debates and stuff. It's very, very low-level discussion. They're not actually getting technical with pretty much anything. It's more about trying to rile up the crowd in your favor and against your opponent's favor, mm -hmm. but more in a sports game capacity rather than a PhD thesis debate <laughs> capacity Yeah, where people are going to be really strict <clears throat> and stop you if you break some logical rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people definitely do have buttons that you can push. Let's see. I think Xe Fatum sent me a thing mm -hmm. that I need to get to. I'm still working on a response to his other one. But he sent me an article about um, the European Union and the, specifically the euro, the currency, the euro. And the article was talking, uh, made the argument that the euro was a kind of conspiracy by uh, liberal economic reformers to try to force countries in Europe to dismantle their uh, welfare states and to significantly deregulate economies and, you know, all this kind of thing. Uh, he was kind of asking me what I thought about it and whether I thought that the Eurozone, the Euro currency, uh, whether I thought it was something implemented by elites to try to reform secretly, uh, some kind of reform by stealth uh, economies in Europe or if it was actually in the public interest to have the euro. And uh, I would I would still argue definitely that uh, the euro is in the public interest of the broader public. Uh, certainly, though, I would also agree with the idea that a lot of the uh, planners who were planning the adoption and implementation of the euro kind of had in the back of their heads that eventually there would be a kind of regulatory alignment. Uh, between the different countries involved, uh, what you would, I guess what you could call internal devaluation. You know, the idea, the idea was that by having, a, well, let me, let me go back a bit. The reason why having a common currency is so useful is because it eliminates the friction of having to deal with different currencies. Whenever a business has to deal with different currencies, uh, when it sells goods across borders, that's inherently a friction that does nothing but inhibit trade. 
because you know you have to deal with the risk of a currency increasing in value or decreasing in value. So you have to take out futures contracts. You know you have to hedge against that risk. So that just costs you more money. And uh, just in general, just in general, having to deal with that uncertainty is is not helpful. So the result then is that having the common currency eliminates that uncertainty, and so then businesses can have more confidence when they're selling and trading across borders. So in that sense, it's a it's a public good. It's beneficial for everybody. Uh, it's also nice to, if you live in a country where the government has traditionally been irresponsible with monetary policy, uh, you know, where they just kind of casually devalue the currency anytime there's an economic problem. Um, it's nice then for those countries, for people in those countries to have the euro because then the, their government can't just casually destroy big chunks of their savings. Uh, devaluing a currency is not benign. You know, it, it can be helpful in the right circumstances when it's done responsibly, but there are a lot of chronic offenders in terms of economic policy in Europe that have just been very bad at managing fiscal policy and monetary policy. And they just keep getting themselves in positions where the only option is to devalue their currency. And the result is that people's savings are just continually hammered. You know, whenever there's a currency devaluation, whenever the, val the currency that your savings are denominated in is devalued, that has an effect on your savings. You know, if there's a 50% currency devaluation, you just lost half your savings if you had them in that denominated in that currency. So on the one hand, yes, there is a certain amount of sovereignty that's relinquished by giving up the right to have your own monetary policy. But then the upshot is that you don't have to worry about getting wiped out intermittently by governments that have trouble with economic policy. That's actually why even in a place like Greece, which has more reason than anybody to not like the euro and the eurozone, even in Greece, most of the public supports the euro specifically because the Greek government has devalued its currency so many times because of successive debt crises over the course of the country's history. Having the euro for them is a benefit. So those are two ways that the euro is, a benef is economically beneficial to the broader public. But, you know, like I was saying before, uh, it was expected from the start that uh, exposing economies that traditionally had had uh, a currency devaluation as an option, exposing, taking that currency devaluation tool away and exposing them to direct competition uh, to each other was invariably going to create economic difficulties. You know, it's, it kind of goes back to the structural economic change stuff we were talking about. By opening up uh, Italy, Spain, etc., you know, Southern Europe to competition from Northern Europe, which in general, uh, you know, the European economies in Northern Europe are relatively more competitive. In general, that inherently meant that there would be disruption in southern economies. So before, where they would have just, you know, devalued their currency, here they would have actually, now, without that option, they would have to actually substantively reform their economies in order to remain competitive. And to a degree, that was going to involve deregulation and uh, a smaller welfare state, or at least a different welfare state, one that was designed differently. So in that sense, yeah, it was a kind of conspiracy in so much as that was expected. But that was also just kind of inevitable. I mean, if you're going to have a currency union like that, then what else can you do? I mean, internal devaluation is the only way to go. And I think another expectation, and this kind of, I think, uh, 
This is why I don't really think it was like a full-blown conspiracy on the part of the far right in Europe to try to deregulate the economy by stealth. Um, I think part of what was expected is that uh, the publics that were suffering from economic downturns in the future, uh, you know, would invariably want uh, economic reform, that they would try to push for economic restructuring because that would be the only viable option, you know, without a currency devaluation, what else can you do but reform the economy? What else can you do but have the internal devaluation? So it was thought that in the short term, there would not be, you know, big political, you know, re political reforms of the economy. But once there was a crisis, surely the voting public would support it as the only viable way forward. And I think what surprised people is the fact that that didn't happen. <laughs> you know, there really was a lot of political opposition to internal devaluation, to structural reforms of one sort or another, etc. And I think that's really bedeviled the European Union and the Eurozone in particular, because there's just, there's really not much else you can do, but the voting public in countries like Italy and Greece, they still are kind of pushing for it. I think less so in Greece now, ever since, uh, ever since that left government kind of failed. Um, what was it? Not Podemos. Syriza? Syriza. I think that's what it was. There was a leftist government that was elected in Syriza specifically because they were promising to stand up to the Eurozone and Germany in particular. Uh, the Troika, as they were called, of lenders. And they stood up to them and then failed categorically. And then after that, I think a lot of people were losing hope. I think I remember reading an article last year that was talking about a recent, the, recent, the most recent election in Greece when the, the center-right party actually won. Not because people in Greece were just super gung-ho about the center-right, but just because they didn't think that any way really matter. You know, I think turnout was pretty low, and just the center-right kind of almost won by default, basically. So hope has been sufficiently crushed in Greece to kind of pave the way for uh, economic recovery to some degree, you know, some sense of political normalcy. But the economy is still kind of struggling to recover because a lot of the structural reforms that they probably should have implemented were not really implemented in the fullest. You know, banking reform in particular uh, was something that the government dragged its feet on and has not really fully implemented yet. But Italy is even worse because they, you know, they've responded to the pressures of the Eurozone crisis by electing, you know, a former comedian in the case of the Five Star League, uh, the Five Star Party. And then in the case of Liga Norda, uh, you know, sort of uh, center-right to far-right former separatist party, you know, so they've definitely gone out to the fringes of the political spectrum, trying to find basically a political party that will try to fix Italy in any way other than reforming the economy, which isn't really going to work, you know, so there's, there's just no really, there's just really no way around it, you know, if the Eurozone is going to continue to function, or more specifically, if the economies that are struggling to be competitive within the Eurozone uh, if they're going to continue, if they're going to move forward and you know, retrieve some economic growth, they're going to have to implement reforms of some kind. You know, it doesn't have to be like a libertarian paradise, far right, you know, completely open up the economy to competition, but there does have to be some incremental reforms somewhere. And it really feels like voters in Southern Europe and places like France, Italy, and Greece are just fighting that tooth and nail to the last. And uh, one of the big open questions, I think, for Europe is how that ends. Going to end up with a bunch of populists in Southern Europe who maybe try to pull out of the Eurozone or you know, implement some other radical economic policies of some kind. Uh, or maybe just 
full-on uh, state capture where very specific industries are propped up to try to employ enough people to try to diffuse that uh, political tension. Or if eventually there are incremental reforms and implemented that allow for the kind of economic growth that's needed to try to alleviate uh, economic conditions. That's, that's an open question right now. It's anybody's guess. But uh, yeah, that's just, that's my take on the euro. It's, uh, it is, I think, a good for the broader public, but I think there is accusations that there was some conspiracy, conspiracy but uh, there definitely was an expectation that there would be so in that sense, they're correct. Ugh. Well, the plus side about this microphone mess up thing is that it's very easy to identify in the uh, file. I can see the, the snap crackle pop is like probably three times the sound of your speaking volume. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Have that ready for next time. I don't know if it's when you move. I could tell you when it happens. Maybe like you move slightly and it something is about to fall apart and that causes it to completely disconnect temporarily. Like that. Whatever just happened. Oh god, save us. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hang on. All right, I muted you temporarily because it was like constantly happening. That's probably okay. just going to get worse. So, yeah, maybe yeah. we want to. We maybe we could just cut it short this week and then. Well, I have a microphone recommendation for you that is in Discord. It's uh, let's see what this is. This is an Audio-Technica AT2020 cardioid condenser USB microphone. So basically this is going to be good for just speaking directly into. If you decide to do like random jumps around your room and you're like bouncing off the wall and stuff, this could be bad because ideally you're supposed to have a, a fixed speaking voice in front of this, which I would guess that during Agent Smith you're probably not jumping around the room like spider-man but if you start doing that you might need to get a different one gotcha not too worried about it sweet well this will be on the voice of neuro have you had any updates on your podcast content that you want to shout out no i'm still devise a business model for the patreon thing mm -hmm. so i'm trying to kind of get that nailed down and then uh, I guess up content, I'm going to release an epilogue episode for the Rio Treaty series. And then uh, probably the next episode will be about NATO and the formation of NATO. Just kind of discussing that. Jeez. What we are witnessing here, <laughs> the final moment of Agent Smith's microphone. Either it gets repaired or it gets replaced. But in either case, this is what it sounds like when a microphone is dying. <laughs> Yeah, my apologies. That's all good. Good having you on as usual. People have their Brexit fix. They got an election update. We got an impeachment update. We visited India. We hit up the coronavirus. 
It's always a pleasure getting a sense of what's going on in the world with you, Agent Smith. And thank you, chat, for your wonderful questions and comments. It's a pleasure to be creating content for you. Yeah. Thank you again. Yeah. And we will see you on the next one, Mr. Agent Smith. Smith. Smith.